There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. How is it you guys were in Hawaii for so long? You're both like still. I was like, thinking pale. the exact same thing. We had full now. fucking wetsuits and our faces were in the water. Mm, all right. Yeah, plus you we weren't there. We weren't there, Jimmy dicking around on the beach. Man. Steve and I were standing out doing the cooking yesterday, or just like came to the conclusion that the sun over there is just an Dude, evil, evil shit. thing, uh, man. Yeah. Oh, there you savage, go, savage dude. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that tan. <laughs> like there's something about it that just like simultaneously cakes salt onto you, sucks the moisture out of you, and yeah, it's and the only burns sun you. that makes you want to shower right away. Yeah. So were you snor- like, were you snorkeling or scuba diving? Spearfish. Yeah. Free diving. Free diving. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So you got like a dorsal tan. You'd come up as that. Right. You know. Except for I had my I don't have a lot of coverage on my head anymore. Yeah, so I well, full full uh, hood just for the sun. Well, yeah, I could tell you some fishing stories to curl your hair, Brody. Oh, let's hear them. <laughs> oh, come on. Wait, we are recording. We should start with that. No. Okay. Fine. Let's start with this. Let's start <laughs> with this. Okay, joined today, uh, Drew Lanham, who, man, we've been trying to get you on for a long time, but we got kind of like, I don't know if you're aware of this, we got waylaid by COVID. What? What was that? Oh, so he knows, he's over it now. It was a no, pandemic. It's the, not, po- it's the pandemic. Post- worldwide. Not, not, not quite over it, but yeah, you know, it's uh, it's been a while, but glad to finally be out here. Yeah, we were, we were talking room. about it a long time ago, and yeah. um, 
originally came from we were reading your your book, which now it's like a 2016 memoir. So I was reading a little bit late, but uh, Drew Lanham, uh, a birder and ornithologist, professor of, professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University, author and poet. And uh, is this your th- this is your most recent book, The Home Place? No, there's a book of poetry. Got it. Called Sparrow Envy, Field Guide to Birds and Lesser Beasts. So that came out uh, 2021. And I uh, also got a little book of poetry on a place called Edisto Island that you might be familiar with down on the coast of South Carolina with uh, two fellow poets. We call ourselves the Pluff Mud Poets. Got it. So You have and, like a school of poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the three of us and then uh, working on about three other books. So, Oh, yeah, excellent, man. Got some stuff going on. The His 2016 memoir, um, which we read and we're going to try to – have drew on and then one thing led to another is uh the home place memoirs of a colored man's love affair with nature so we're gonna dig in on that we had to pr- i had to cut cal and drew off because they started talking about uh what's up with quail in the south um and i got real interested so we're gonna return to that in a minute and it also i want to point out explain to people your necklace which is the coolest necklace i've seen in a long time yeah, it's uh, it's a raven skull. It's a miniature raven skull that's uh, carved out of white-tailed deer antler. So ravens are kind of a, I don't know, a totem sort of for me. Mm-hmm. You know, large black beings that like to play. All right. And so <laughs> that's, that's that's what I dig. Couple, uh, a couple things to watch out for if you're in a, in a viewing mood. Uh, Duck Cam Dinners with uh, Jean-Paul Bourgeois is back for season two. Follow him and his crew as they dive deep into their duck season in Louisiana, getting after great duck hunting and cooking up some badass meals at the camp along the way. And then we have, I'm working on an episode, we're in the editing process on an episode we do with Jean-Paul down in Louisiana, which is a hell of a good time and a lot of fun. Uh, went crayfishing too. So stay tuned for all that. Cal, you get, Cal's got something to plug. Oh, we've been talking a lot about our block management access appreciation program that is tied into, I would say, our overall access pillar here at, on the conservation side of Meat Eater. Uh, so it falls in there with our land access initiative, but we purchased a 46 steel chainsaws. 46 visa check cards, randomly drew 46 participating landowners in Montana's private land public access program, which is called Block Management. And we showed up on a bunch of folks' doorsteps and just said thank you on behalf of hunters for being part of the program. There's about 7 million acres enrolled, 7 million private acres enrolled, some of which gives or provides access to a lot of landlocked public land as well. And it's, it, it is a, a great program. Every state has one like it. And you can hear one of the most fun projects I think Phil and I have got to do, uh, which was listen to a bunch of landowners candidly talking about the program and, and uh, having a little conversation with me while on the road dropping off these thank you packages um, and that's on Cal's Week in Review. If you want to listen to that, just to get an idea of, you know, what we've been doing over here. Episode 171, 171. Yeah. Yes, sir. I need to figure out if you dropped off any gifts at the uh, BMA I want to antelope on at. 
Exactly. You want to throw her to that? Exactly. <laughs> there was a big caveat, big caveat in there that said, if you volunteer to drop things off, do not ask <laughs> for hunting access. This is the last time these landowners are going to see a hunter. Well, I got you. <laughs> and not be asked for something. This is, it was a thank you mission only. And it was, uh, it was great. Lots of good interaction, lots of good feedback on the program, and, and uh, just gave a good perspective that you don't get every day on uh, the other side of the fence. Cal's Week in Review, you can, you can find anywhere you, well, if you're listening to this right now, use this same platform and switch over to Cal's Week in Review and hear uh, Cal's Weekly Show. Also, Sabretooth um, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, Sabretooth with Kevin Gillespie. Go check out there um, where he cooks up scimitar horned orcs. And uh, that is an animal we covered on an episode of our own show called Cuddle the Scimitar. Is that what we called that show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. And uh, Steve, there's just a cute photo floating out there of, of me cuddling a yeah, scimitar of, horned of orcs. Steve that then they little... killed and ate. <laughs> oh no, no, it's not they, actually no, that not one. yet, not yet. <laughs> I mean, say that pretty quick. Maybe it'll be a uh, ship back to uh, Chad. Maybe it's got strong genes. But anyway, it's a very cute photo. Uh, our Campfire Stories is out right now, the second installment of Campfire Stories. And so, so we're already beating people's doors down. And I'm talking to you, uh, <clears throat> you folks, you listeners. We're starting to collect stuff for, for three, volume three. So we had, um, most recently we released, and it's kicking ass. Mm-hmm. Who's Brene Brown? We were beating Brene Brown. I don't know who that is. I'm not sure how many listeners of this podcast know who Brene Brown is. Yeah. But our audible, our, like audible, our audible book was beaten. A lot of Americans know who Brene Brown is. Yeah, I didn't know when you sent out that little uh, message. Uh, I'm going to venture to say... It's a woman. I'm going to venture to say that if you're the, the, a the spouse in a relationship not listening to Brene Brown, you've been told to listen to Brene Brown That's many exactly times. That's exactly right. Yep. So our audio book was whooping her audio book. <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I like to hear that. Um, when it came out, it was like uh it was, you know, like in the the, the trending, it hit all the tops. Super top. Yeah, it super, hit super top. tops and all of them. Anyhow, we're out looking for new ones now. I'm on to a hot lead from I don't want to spoil it. I'm on a hot lead from someone who's been in this room who was I don't want to deal, tell too much of the story. Yeah, because then we're gonna start guessing. Just a little teaser. Okay. Let's, let's say had front row seats too. <laughs> he had as he was worked for a helicopter logging operation. Oh, I can't possibly and, imagine. And who was this present is. for the rotors coming off of the helicopter oh, above him. Present but <gasps> not responsible for. No. <laughs> Insane. He, he felt a bunch of lug nuts in his pocket. <laughs> Insane. And he's like, oh, I've got to tighten them up. No, it's no laugh matter. Wait, whose <clears> thing <throat> is the lug nuts thing? We don't have a lug nuts thing. What no, are you about? isn't. Th- you think of a Christmas on? story. No, didn't we have a guest on who was saying, like, <laughs> no one ever, no one knows oh. what lug nuts are? And, like, if you know if you know what lug nuts are, you're like a real yeah you're like you're right. a independent self sufficient human, and if you don't, or, then you're yeah. like a millennial. I've had a close call with some lug nuts when I was a fishing guide. People who didn't like fishing guides loosen the lug nuts on the boat boat trailer. That's a good trick. No way. Wow. Oh yeah, that's like that's, eco. That's like that's eco. That's bad. like angler terrorism, <laughs> dude. I've really s- happened to me twice. Yeah, I've seen that one where they pull the pin Kill on the somebody, hitch man. Uh-huh. and leave the hitch in the pickup. And then when you go pull yep. away, yeah, punch uh, inside balls on tires. Hitch. That was one there too. Goes the to this exact point, of <laughs> over trout, 
Man, y'all are gangster out here. Yep. <laughs> a buddy of mine who's wow. the he loves to spearfish striper down in California in the rivers. And people who love to, you know, target those things with the giant, super expensive swim baits don't like that. Right. And uh, he's had people pull the pin on on his uh, boat trailer. So when he goes back and in there, and as you like to point out, kids love playing on boat ramps and stuff. So sure. he's like super dangerous. And this guy's a big family guy. But uh, last week he was diving and found a fully set up boat on the trailer Totally submerged in the river. Really? Yeah. Oh, shit. He said he, he said he swam down there and got a picture of the VIN number <laughs> and started posting well, it around. How would the person not know that it's down there? Maybe they just couldn't get it Of course it out. they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in our hunt for stories, we got a guy submitted one that Corinne and I decided um, is best just read here. <laughs> <laughs> Goes fast. <laughs> Go, yeah, bear with, bear with us. Just heard about the close calls, campfire stories, audiobooks. He goes on. I'm reading. I'm reading them. I wanted to share a close call that happened in our deer hunting party that I often share, as it is important for others to hear of the dangers involved in shooting at running game, not knowing your background, shooting above your abilities, target fixation, and sometimes a total disregard for safety once the buck shows up. Blow is the brief version. That's the best intro ever right there. Yeah, that's a good one. Maybe he's maybe 16 or 17 years old. Says he can give us more details if we need them. Our hunting party had come to the end of a deer drive, and as we were just stepping out of the woods, a buck that had held tight to the last few feet of the drive decided it was time to vacate the woods at a dead run. He did this in full view of the entire party which consisted of two posters and and approximately six drivers, so eight-ish shooters. We'd have called those pushers and sitters. What does Seth call them? Watchers and stand? We called them drivers and posters. Ours would be drivers and blockers in South Dakota. You know what? Pushers and blockers, I think is what we called them. Pushers. (laughs) (laughs) Ran into some pushers out in the woods. Mm Mm-hmm. So eight shooters, back to quoting. Everyone fired, myself included, until we were empty. The deer was untouched. (laughs) (laughs) However, three-quarters mile downrange was a farm. As we left the hunting area, we passed the farm. And there was a man in his bathrobe standing outside with a pistol. Two of our party stopped and asked if he was okay. He said someone shot him and revealed a bruise on his arm. Oh, my. Upon investigation, it was determined that a bullet from the hunting party had passed through a thicket of trees, reached his house, passed through two walls of the house, and struck him in the arm while he was in bed sleeping. He worked nights. (laughs) That's incredible. Well, yeah, because right away I wanted to, I I, I looked down on him. Because he was lazy, <laughs> he was sleeping the day in the middle of bed, sleeping in the middle of the day. He worked nights, so Should it's totally, out yeah, there driving totally deer. Ex- yeah, totally excusable. Pushing. Upon searching the man's bed, the bullet was discovered where it had torn the blankets when it struck him. The man calmed down and later said he thought his ex-wife was trying to kill him. <laughs> we all knew the man and his family and they have never spoken a bad word or exhibited any bad blood towards our hunting party. 
Why? I don't know. <laughs> oh, why didn't we pick that one for the next book, Steve? <laughs> That's an exercise of patience you know what? right there. Dude, that, there's a lot of morals in that story. One, take it easy <laughs> when it comes to shooting your guns. <laughs> and two, wow, the forgiveness. Yeah. You know how mm. we have the... Uh, no law- bad blood. It's, no it's all heart. good. It's all good. You just shot me heart. in you know my how, bed. <laughs> you know how we have the longest one-sentence story ever on a t-shirt? Yeah. T-shirt. That might be a good t-shirt, t-shirt right there. Right I think we need a series of t-shirts that are various stories. Hmm. I mean, yeah. did anybody offer to patch the drywall? Or was a guy like, well... Yeah, that's what, what I'm Well, that's before what said. I go on my shift, he said if you better... want more details, you got to call him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, there you have it. Yeah, that may be our next our next story. It should be a whole line of t-shirts called story t-shirts. Yeah. Because we have one yeah. about the sexual depravity of turkeys. <laughs> I had to check in and see how well that's selling. Uh, speaking of which, go to the Meat Eater store and check out that well, turkey how many do, story how, shirt. You don't, you, don't, you don't have any updates on whether people want the turkey story mm-hmm. shirt? I got to get those updates. We can insert it. I'm going to put a picture of it on Instagram. Um. We covered Alaska's fire season, and we were pointing out like how it'll only get worse, right, as fire season kicks up, and a firefighter who's been working up there um, pointed out that uh, it's a different fuel model up there, and the time frames are different. So their fire season starts early and ends early. So their fire season is May to August. Um. And he says, partly due to the sun being out 24-7. Although the length of the season is lengthening and record acreage is burning more and more. Thanks for the outdoor advocacy. Uh, man, so much feedback, I can't even get into it all. On <laughs> Whether you say, this is a good question for Drew. If I said to you, I saw two deers or two bucks, or I saw two buck. Or I saw two doe tonight. What do, what do you think about all that? Uh, depends on where you're from. You know? <laughs> Let's say where it's, you're from. I'm going to say two deer. And then you see two bucks. I see two bucks. Bucks. Not two buck. Mm. No, two does. Yeah, two. If I'm saying two buck, that's like, you know, two buck. That's like some sort of dance or something. Two buck. Yeah. Two bucks <laughs> is two male deer. Okay. So now, you don't say like like they do in Pennsylvania, two buck. No, no, no. Nope. And uh, one doe, two does. Got it. One of the guys that wrote in thought that it sounded like a Dr. Seuss book. He thinks we should clear it up in order to make a Dr. Seuss book called uh, one. And he, it's all set to one fish, two fish. Yeah. One deer, two deer. Deer there, deer here. <laughs> Steve shoots, it's a miss. Brody's next, makes a hit. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes down and say, just spitballing. Uh, a guy from Pennsylvania, where we were kind of based on, wrote in, like, saying, like, he says, someone for someone to say, seeing a few buck doesn't strike me as an odd thing to say, and in most cases, Mr. Webster agrees. So, Webster Dictionary will accept deer and also deers. will accept bucks or buck. Okay. But he points out some exceptions. I mean, the, the ones goes on shrimp, beaver, duck, turkey. The exceptions that Webster does not include is you cannot apparently say mooses. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you cannot say gooses. 
I kind of well, like Well, you that. can. You can. You can. Say, you can say gooses. I mean, but that's. Multiple what, species of geese. No, well, no, that's a thing you do to somebody else. Oh, like a bird. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he always gooses his butt. Oh, there you oh, go. Oh. No. Mm. But you say geese, you don't say meese. I mean, it's like two different. Mm. It's a weird comparison. Mm. I feel that is. Like. is. Is there a term for when a writer chooses to use a word improperly like that, like to like in a uh, turn of phrase or a regional colloquialism? Just be like they're a colloquial writer. Yeah, Steve just yeah. got in an argument with Pat Durkin. I got an argument. Pat Durkin wrote in arguing about what the hell's he arguing about? White tail versus white tail. Oh, that you're supposed like in his land, you're supposed to in his mind. And he gets frustrated with our editors that, like, in the old days, it was white dash tailed deer. And he's pained by the fact that white tails, one word, is now a thing. He prefers the old hyphenated, like, white tailed deer, which makes it seem like you're, like, you know, reading, uh, what's his name? Isaac Walton. <laughs> well, to, to Pat's the, credit, yeah. Heffelfinger agreed with him. Yeah, well, Heffelfinger's got a lot of stupid things. I mean, he's smartest guy I know. <laughs> smartest guy I know. Sorry, but his whole thing about, not a lot, he's got a couple stupid things. The cows <laughs> thing and the whitetail <laughs> thing are stupid things that Heffelfinger believes in. That's right. God bless him. I love him. Smartest guy I know. But he's wrong on cows and he's wrong on whitetail deer. <laughs> I would bet they're the same way about like green winged teal, blue winged teal mm. versus, you know, green wings and blue wings, which Real. is colloquial i told him i've been fighting with editors my entire career about this thing and there's nothing that to me at a glance looks goofier than white dash tailed deer <laughs> it's like they're white tails and i told pat he's probably still lamenting the loss of thee and thou in popular <laughs> in popular vernacular and i told him this there's two school of thoughts there's there's two like dictionaries take two forms i feel like i've i've discussed this you have like a descriptive approach to language and you have a prescriptive approach to language. Prescriptive would be like you're, you're saying how it should be done, right? Mm -hmm. You're prescribing its use. A descriptive approach is you're capturing its use. Mm, right. There's also a matter of efficiency, right? Like whitetails. Sure. Way easier than... But it's like at a point, like like usage... Proper usage should serve the users, I feel. Hence, that we've moved away from thee and thou. It's like it should serve the user. So I just like, I, like stuff like that, I don't have any, I don't, I don't have any like sympathy for that. Drew, as a writer, do you have thoughts on? Yeah, you know, it's a matter of, uh, it, it's kind of like accent to me. So I always want to feel the accent. I want to know where someone's from. So, you know, to move, for example, diction or a conversation into some unrealistically stilted place takes away from the action. It takes away mm. from the environment. So, you know, I'm all about keeping colloquialisms. Uh -huh. And so to understand, I mean, I like old duck names, for example, right? Hit me as so, an old duck name. I mean, Spoonie. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, um, so, and you think, or Summer Duck for Wood Duck. Mm -hmm. Oh, I never so, heard that one. Yeah, mm -hmm. Summer Duck. I mean, because in South Carolina, historically, I mean, that was about the only duck we were going to have in the summertime. I mean, now we got, you know, Fulvis tree ducks and, and, and black bellied Westland ducks that are around. 
but summer duck. So that was going to, I mean, that said enough that you knew that that's going to be a duck that hangs around in the summer. You're not saying esponsa, <laughs> you know, the Latin name for that bird. Um, but so, yeah, to keep the action real for a nonfiction um, writer, yeah, you want to you wanna keep that there. And for, and for a fiction writer, really, I stop believing, I stop reading when someone is sort of out of context for a place. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if 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 they haven't done their work, and you know you've got someone from Pennsylvania saying something that something something that someone from South Carolina would say, then I, you know I kind of push that. Uh-huh. Out. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's where I come down. On I'll take this opportunity to once again plug the works of Cormac McCarthy, who more mm-hmm. than anyone mm-hmm. learns like the language there of you what go. he's talking about. There you go. I mean, do your homework. Yeah. Like he went to the Southwest to start writing about the Southwest and holy shit. Or like when Annie Prude started writing out of Wyoming. I mean, she got where she knew it mm-hmm. better than anybody, man. Um, what the hell was I talking about? Oh, yeah. I, the lead episode, let me do an abbreviated version. Okay. There's a guy that hunts uh, muzzleloader only areas. And in some states, it actually spells out like you have to use a lead projectile with a muzzleloader. And he's like, what's a fellow to do? And you'd be like, well, like I've I've hunted with my muzzleloader, um, with Federal's all copper muzzleloader ammo, but it's sabotaged, and there's no true to bore. I what believe this is mean? correct. So the it's wrapped. The projectile mm-hmm. is wrapped in a plastic sheath. Right. Okay. So what yeah. actually? So let's say you ha- let's say you're shooting a 50 caliber muzzleloader. The projectile is actually what? Do you guys know? Not fifty. No, it's not. Yeah, it's, it's like thirty six or some shit like that, and it's wrapped in a. In a it's wrapped in a. It's basically wrapped in a wadding. Okay, like you know, in the old days, you take like a little bit of take some bear grease and put it on some linen, and wrap your ball in it. Mm-hmm. What that does is that bites the that 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 helps bite the the lands and grooves inside the barrel. It. it holds helps bite the rifling mm-hmm. and gives it a snug fit, so gases don't escape around the edge. So. If you wanted, if you were, if you were like desirous to shoot an all copper thing through your muzzleloader, it's going to be sabotaged in a plastic sheath, and that plastic bites the lands and the grooves, and throws a spin on it. And then when it comes out the muzzle, it sheds that plastic. And so some states require true to bore, like the, when they spell it, like what exactly is a muzzleloader? Mm-hmm. It requires a true to bore projectile. And so there's no copper true to, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. There's no copper true to bore muzzleloader projectile it. because yeah. it's not going to, I think it's like, it's not, it's too hard. It doesn't bite. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. I wouldn't know. That's what he wrote in about. Uh, uh, speaking of Heffelfinger, and that's just, that's not because El Jefe sounds like Heffelfinger, <laughs> but because Heffelfinger's is, uh, <laughs> Hefflefinger is always nipple deep in the whole Jaguar conversation. T- tell us, uh, tell us the Jaguar news, Brody. Yeah, how does Spencer say it? Jaguar. 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 <laughs> I say Jaguar. Uh, yeah, Spencer a, uh, calls them Jaguars. There's a famous Jaguar down in uh, Jaguar down southern Arizona, known as El Jefe, uh, who was believed for several years to be the only Jaguar that was in. The United States. And just a bad looking yeah. mofo, man. Yeah. So that 2015 is the last time they saw him. I think they may have 
believed he was dead. Um, but the, in any case, like he just disappeared in 2015. So that was seven years ago. Um, El Jefe just popped up across the border in Mexico, um, still alive at 12 years old. Um, pretty, it's a pretty cool story. It, it's like, it, I'm going to bring up something that always gets people riled up as shit. Um, if when debating, when debating the border wall, okay, I brought this up a hundred times. I'm going to bring it up again. When debating the border wall, like a normal, I can't think of how to approach this subject. I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not scared to approach. I'm just going to approach it. When debating the border wall, you would think that people would be like, I want to hear all the sides to it, right? Aside to the debate around the border wall is what it means for the freedom of movement of large land mammals. Okay. Birds, no problem. Well, a lot of birds, no problem. Ghouls, turkeys, probably not great. But it's it's a thing to factor, right? But people get mad that you bring it up because they're like, well, your job hasn't been taken by a... Right? And it's like, well, no, no, no. I'm just entering in a thing to consider. The same way if you're sitting there with your... Like, my wife and I right now are kicking around what we might do for Christmas. It just so happens that airline tickets are very expensive right now, and we have a family of five. So if we're saying, we want to go to X for Christmas. And then someone says, however, let's bear in mind, plane tickets are very expensive. Is it then, do you then say like, well, you just hate vacations? (laughs) Or is it, no, I'm just making sure I factor everything in and making my decision about how I feel about us going on the vacation. In the same spirit, building an impenetrable wall across a couple thousand miles of wildlife habitat will have implications, but this is interesting because this thing is moving back and forth. That's right. Um, well, so are the people. It's well, illegal. It's illegal. <laughs> to be fair, he may have, I mean, that wall hasn't been, Yeah, he might have found his spot, right? Yeah, and like, um, and, and people move back and forth. But it's interesting that that he, right, that he, that he has his way of doing it and not even being captured by, inner like, and not even just getting picked up by electronic intercepts. Yeah, they I, they ID'd him, I think, with, uh, I don't know if it was trail cam pictures or whatever, but someone got some images of him, and they ID'd him by, you know, they, they basically, like, fingerprint Jaguars with their markings. Sure. And that's how they ID'd him and, and found out he's still alive out there. And twelve, So, 12 years old, um, I'm imagining that's an ancient... My understanding is you're at the end of the line. Yeah. You're at the end of the yeah. line. Um, yeah. Just from just from stu- like work in work in South America, ten, eleven, twelve. Their yeah. teeth, their yeah. teeth are cooked, and then yep. they usually wind up chewing on someone's dog in their backyard yep. because they can't get any, you know they can't get anything to eat. Uh, you know, you're talking about the fingerprinting on jaguars. Is you remember a few years ago, one turned up in a on the Mexico side of the border. One pictures turned up on Facebook. Um, the, the person with the Jaguar was unidentifiable, but it was like a Jaguar, a dead Jaguar mm-hmm. shot. And the floral, I think they call it, was it rosettes they call them on there? I think you're right, rosettes. Yeah, you, the rosettes are diagnostic, and they actually, in that Jaguar, had spent time in Arizona. Yeah. So um, they're, you know, I think the question of whether they're moving back and forth has clearly been settled. I, but, it, you know, I wonder if uh, El Jefe 
left any offspring in in uh, the U.S. If you're interested in the Jaguar debate in this country, I'm gonna try to like talk about as quickly as possible. Is like as they look at Jaguar recovery and Jaguar protection, there's a spirited debate about what function historically did West Texas, Southern New Mexico, and Southern Arizona, like what function did they actually play in the in in the well-being of Jaguars? And some people are like, there's enough evidence to suggest that it was like there was a thinly dispersed, viable, reproducing population of Jaguars in those states, and recovery would mean that you had a thinly dispersed, reproducing, viable population of jaguars, or it would be that now and then one showed up. Yeah. And it was never core habitat. But either way, it was like the northern edge of their territory, right? Like they weren't, there wasn't ever a lot of them. That was as far as they went, you know. Sure. Well, I think to to Brody's uh, earlier comment, it would provide some context to people too to, Um, think about the dynamics of these cat populations because like did El Jefe leave any kids behind? I I would have Heffelfinger's book read El Jefe. How many kids he left behind and how many he ate along the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, Sean, hit us with, um, you, you had an assignment. Yep. We listed out a ton of duck reports to do, like eight, eight different subject matters to cover. Oh, quackity quack, don't hawk back. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> go on, I'm sorry, go on. Um, one, of, one of those subjects being what led to the explosion of snow goose populations. And we've kind of discussed in the duck report before. Tell people what we mean. Yeah. Like, if your dad was a goose hunter... Right? Mm-hmm. There was no, like, you know, insane, like, no plugs needed, electric electronic collars allowed, bag limits of 50 snow geese a day, hunting them during turkey season. Yeah. None of that was happening. No. And all a lot of it comes back to human influence and human impact on the environment and agriculture, right? Uh when you came and hunted with me in South Dakota the first time, we did podcast that was hunting the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. And God, good we, titles, man, always good titles. That was a good one. The next, the next title, it'll already be out, I think. But it's um, Thoreau had little use for you. Mm. That's a titillator. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, but we were hunting flooded beans, right, and flooded corn. Yeah, and like how that benefits ducks and how ducks thrive in that environment. Snow geese are another example of winners in the spread of agriculture Mm -hmm. and the explosion of grain agriculture across the Midwest and the West. Um, You know, you go back to like early 1900s and snow geese were this, and there's, there's a lot of, you know, old historical records that the Fish and Wildlife Service collected and compiled in their argument for what we now call the light goose spring conservation order. But a hundred years ago, snow geese were this 
small population of birds that nested on the tundra and then end up wintering in a sliver of habitat in coastal Texas and Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s as we see small grain kind of explode across the plains and places like Kansas and Iowa draining wetlands and creating, you know, pretty much a food source for those snow geese. Define small grain. Wheat, barley, and then now, of course, corn. Okay. But in the, you know, in that 20s to 40s, and, and in addition to that, in Texas and Louisiana, you see a lot of those coastal brackish marshes get drained and turned into rice fields. And what happens is snow geese respond positively to that. Uh, Their population starts exploding because now as they make this crazy trek, right, which we discussed in the uh, odometer duck report where we talked about how much, you know, the average snow goose flies 20 and a half miles per day its whole life, which is just wild to me. That's incredible, man. (laughs) It's so much. So, so now that they fly all this time and spend so much time traveling, now they actually have a food source that helps them be healthy along the whole way. And, um, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s, a guy named Dr. Rockwell, who helped me with this and helped me with an article I wrote, he started researching snow geese on La Prusse Bay in, in, on the edge of the Hudson Bay in Canada. And he pretty much, what, what he found and what he argued for, starting actually all the way back in the 70s, was these snow geese every year are more and more healthy as they come back north on their spring migration. And it coincides beautifully with more and more food across the Midwest as they, as they come back north. Yep. So you get these new spots that they kind of stop and hit along the way. Uh, Squaw Creek, which is now called Los Bluffs, uh, in Missouri, Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge in South Dakota, et cetera, where you have this perfect collision of habitat where you have a good water source, you know, a, a consistent water source every year that they can stop at surrounded by food. And freeze out lake here in Montana. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I remember you could call a, when we used to go up there and hunt that, you could call a hotline and the hotline would tell you that there's 20,000 snow geese, an estimated 20,000 are here. Then you call a few days later, be like an estimated 26,000 are here. And just like decide if you're going to (laughs) go based off the number. Yeah. They, they used to have that on Sand Lake National Wildlife Refuge in South Dakota too. I remember one time that they Estimated there was 2.2 million snow geese sitting on that thing. You're kidding. <laughs> Just so many in one place. So, so long story short, um, you know, for example, with Dr. Rockwell's research, he watched during his time living up there on the tundra researching snows, he watched that Hudson Bay population go from 1,500 nesting pairs to over 500,000 nesting pairs Man. during his time of research there. And that's just not in his life. That's during his career. Right. 
And now, so so what we had then in the '90s is guys like him making an argument for these snow geese are extremely productive. Agriculture is benefiting them. We got to do something. And in 1999 is when they took the gloves off and said, "All right, hunters, um, have at it. Shoot as many snow geese as you can." Adding, you know, no plugs. Use electronic calls. Yeah, all things that are like unheard of right in waterfowl management right and you know give credit where credit's due on that like ducks unlimited was huge in hunters getting that opportunity because frankly there was a lot of discussion around poisoning them Mm. and which is hard to think about as we you know we look back on like poisoning of bears and wolves across their whole native range and decimation of that, we see it as like, oh, we would never do that again. But only 30 years ago, it was like on the table to poison snow geese. Did I tell you, did I ever brag to you about the vial, which is probably still at my mom's house, that we had a glass vial of what my dad swore up and down was, <laughs> like it was like a white powder. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you put that and mix it with corn and put it out, it'll kill the geese right off. No, I haven't heard that, but what is it? Do you know what the chemical is? It sat on the windowsill in the garage. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you it's strychnine. And no, like we never touched it, but my dad's like, that's what that is. And he'd got that. That's for killing geese. Yeah, and he was going to someday mix it with some bread and put it on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Just to see what happened. But like like I said, I guarantee that thing is still sitting there. I need to go grab that. Just goose killing powder. Kid eats it. Yeah. (laughs) So. Uh, anyway, what has it been effective? No, um, yeah. <laughs> no, it hasn't, man. They they're just too productive, and they fly around in such large flocks. You know the the hunter impact on snow geese has been single digit. Hey, man! After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you 
to get hydrated. Doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sites are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's XSSites.com, code MEATEATER. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light percentile. How could that be true? And, you know, the thing is, I mean, we've got an episode of Duck Lore that's out snow goose hunting with Kevin Gillespie and you know you'll have 40 50,000 snows fly over you that and and you kill two you kill four like there's so many eyes they live to be so old they see so many decoy spreads you know we're putting out a thousand decoys with dozens of speakers mimicking snow goose sounds a great hide and like they just they just know they are the hardest bird to hunt, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's it's interesting to see that they nature does a lot better job of canning snow goose populations with spring storms on the tundra God. than hunters could ever, you know, dream of doing. Is there any the, the, speculation that their population could like crash because there's like they there is no usable nesting? Territory, you know, right? like, that that was originally the speculation, that it was right? Like, it was degrading Arctic habitat. Right. That was the argument behind the spring light goose conservation order was they're so negatively impacting their tundra habitat that we got to preserve the tundra. What we've seen instead is that as they degrade certain areas, they tend to just disperse and find new areas, right? That they, they hop around to premium yeah. habitat and- They've actually moved away from a lot of the coastal habitat, and they've moved to more interior nesting in some places. Another wrinkle I've heard of in this, which could change the dialogue a little bit, is as there is a reduction in sea ice and an escalation in snow geese populations, that polar bears are becoming increasingly reliant on snow geese nesting colonies. 
<sighs> yeah, there, there's well, there's and there's so I'm not much. Saying, do you buy it? But do you know about that? I do, Doctor. I do. Doctor Rockwell was actually talking to me about how they're having a hard time knowing exactly what's going on on the tundra with snow goose populations because there is so many bears moving with these snow goose colonies and that it's like dangerous to have researchers on the ground because there's now spots where there is a, there are spots where there is all three bears colliding around snow goose habitat. No. Yes. That'd be cool to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have one stop shopping right there. <laughs> yeah. No shit. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be wild to see a black bear, a grizzly, and a polar bear? Like wandering around a snow goose colony. A eating black on bear, some eggs. a grizzly bear, and a polar bear walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. thanks, man. Yeah. It's a fun one. Uh, Oh, if you want to learn more about Duck uh, Duckler, go back and check out our episode called Test My Meat. They tell a little backstory on that. And also, speaking of Test My Meat, we solicited where people were supposed to send us the toughest meat they've ever encountered. We got it in our freezer. And Not we're gonna, all of it. Well. People need to follow my instructions. Corinne's very disappointed in people's <laughs> listening abilities. She's like become like a critic of the American education system. <laughs> However... <laughs> Very explicit details that were not followed in many cases, but we have a lot of samples in the freezer, yep. and we're gonna get instead of doing it on the podcast, we're gonna we're gonna fire up our tender our meat testing tenderness testing machine and uh-huh. do a video about it so everybody can see how it you works. You guys need yeah. to do that geriatric cow I shot last year. Oh, totally. Yeah. Turn oh, yeah. it in. Yeah. Did yeah. you fill out a form? No, I, I, I didn't know there was. Follow one. Corinne's rules, Brody. Are you ready, Drew? Ready. All good. Uh, go. While we do this, Callahan is going to um, bartend for us. We, we covered on the show that they're making a... Yeah, green crab whiskey. They're ma- they taking green crabs and making whiskey out of them. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Who's the outfit? It's Tamworth Distilling yep. in New Hampshire. In and New they New make Hampshire. a beaver caster product. We're going to have to ask them about that. But yeah, Is that not true? Maybe they do. I don't know. Who's holding it right here? Oh, they must. It's like it's beaver. It's a whiskey with infused with with beaver caster. Is that is that what we we're trying that. right now? That's is what that we're what trying. Right? That's what's well, I thought, you, I thought we're drinking the green crab whiskey. Wait. Castorium flavored whiskey. I didn't think okay. we'd be on a meat eater podcast and not get around to the beaver caster. Okay, whiskey. so we're doing the beaver caster first, and then we're gonna have to do the cork. green crab. Oh, but, <laughs> but thank you to the listeners who wrote in because no. I said that we probably couldn't get this product here in this, Montana. This speaking, so of crab. speaking of crab, you know how early we were talking nope. about euphemisms. Nope. I I'll tell you one I stole from Charles Portis. Who uh, Charles Portis, who wrote True Grit, mm-hmm. and someone says of Rooster Cogburn that he likes to pull a cork. Mm-hmm. Yep, there you go. <laughs> and I and I and I stole that from that book, and that's what I use when I'm talking about someone who drinks a tad too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> likes to pull a cork. It is Friday. Here's afternoon. a sound. Here's a sound effect. Oh, Oh, that was real. That was a great one. Put that one one in the file. I might sell sell that sound effect to somebody. You want (laughs) to put a drop of that on your tongue and see if you can detect any beaver casters? Or smell first. Listen, dude, if you come to the right place, because I got a nose for beaver casters. Oh, yeah. I smell that. It's a little, I mean, Mm. you know. 
Zero. Zero. No, yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting like, anything either. Smells like whiskey to it me. Tastes got, like whiskey. Too. You guys don't tastes smell like whiskey. That? Listen, man, I could, sm- from- I could be hundreds of yards away from a beaver lodge and I'll smell the cast. Beaver, beaver caster is a powerful smell, mm. man. Don't you have a whiff of that in your little shot? No, glass I, I just got it. Yeah. You know how I got it? Drink your drink, suck it dry. And then and then get your nose about two three inches away from the mouth and take a whiff and I just hit the caster. It's very subtle. Castorium no, it's, it's flavored whiskey. Yeah. Man, I that's pretty tasty. That's go like this, bro. That's not bad. Go like this. Go. <laughs> uh, Steve is doing some motion <laughs> where he puts his nose up in the air and he looks time really we really bougie. <laughs> <laughs> What's the other one? The crab flavored yeah, one? Is that, yeah, is that one tastes like crab, one, don't we? Okay, so I Crab like Trapper, right? Crab this trapper. is the one I was kind of given a hard time, having never tasted it, uh, based off the fact that it's a their their uh, descriptor was a better tasting fireball. Yeah, it. Uh, I thought, ooh. boy, yeah, what that, the world needs. Really and it comes yeah. packed in what I thought was a suet cage, but then realized I think it might be it. It comes in a little crab trap. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's a suet cage. <laughs> Do they got an origin story? How's we the got crab read? one there, Cal. I'm trying my 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 trick. Little teeny bit. Cal. Yeah, I'll I'll take a little Oof. bit. Was the last time anyone was drinking on here hot buttered rum? It was. I used to have a. Theory. I got a good plan for this upcoming Christmas. Huh, this uh, is the what one's the, what's <laughs> this? This is Crab Trapper right here. Desert yep. Dora Crab Trapper. Parents. Oh, nice. That one's different. There. That's different. I used to have a theory well, that well, all the swill beers were all made in the same here. factory. <laughs> Brody just made a face like he busted into his dad's liquor cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> Back when he was yeah. a wee lad. When he was supposed to be sick at school from uh, school. I give him credit for going oh, after those oh, crabs. I could oh, actually. I, yeah, that's, that's some, yeah, that's some marine going on in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got some crab. Oh, yeah. It's there. Yeah, it's there. It's there. It's briny. It's, mm. Yeah, it's 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 briny. It's sort of like crab been left out in the sun. It smells sweet. Right? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> briny isn't quite what I. Hmm. No. Briny's. Giving it some credit. Yeah, it's past Brownie. <laughs> it smells good. Oh, oh yeah. wow! Oh yeah! Holy shit! Stronger Shucks. than the caster yeah. for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I thought the, oh, the that, that caster was quite good. I haven't had a yeah, sip of whiskey in many. This. Let's try some Dude, of that, that tarsal gland. Fish boy. Are we going to try the tarsal gland? Yeah, Drew was wondering if they made one you know? with a <laughs> tarsal gland off box, <laughs> man. There's there's well, something about this. This is called Deer Slayer. Oh, that is the tarsal gland. Just shaking his head. It's made with deer meat. I it mean, maybe if you rim the glass whiskey. with Old Bay or something. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, that's what it tastes Ooh. like. Yep, there's Old yeah, Bay yeah. seasonings in there. See, I'm like part Chinese. Some, something about this is dipping into that fermented, funky, like, mm. we have a thing called, you know, stinky tofu. Doesn't sound appetizing, but it is. Oh, Drew, what it, what, what's your no. face telling us right mm. now? This that I'm not gonna catch a buzz from this. That's what it's telling you. Because <laughs> you're not gonna drink, I'm enough, not gonna of drink it. enough of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, this is a deterrent from, from pulling a cork. <laughs> so oh, no. so that sound effect, reverse it. <laughs> what does it sound like when you reverse it? We'll find out. <laughs> Wait, now he's that's okay, the here's, Whoa. Here it is. Is that the uh, tarsal one? Or no, no that's the this crab is one. The, tr- the crab one. Shh. Oh, oh, that's not sad. Oh, yeah. That's not as good. No. No. 
No, neither is well, that no vacuum. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think about that? I'm ready, to, I'm ready to start the interview now. Yeah, if, if anybody <laughs> would like to try the deer one, just pass your glass yeah, down Yeah, we probably here need to end with that. To I'm more of a beaver. What's it called? Beaver Trapper? The beaver. The, yeah, the, that, that, was, that was good. That's real good. Oh, it was like oh, a tasty bourbon. Yeah. So that's something I've been Americanizing for far too long. Probably out of um, old cartoons. It, it was always Ode Day. But yeah. here it is spelled out in front of me, and it's E-A-U space D-E space musk. Yeah. So they went with it's, Crab Trapper for green French crab flavored cow. whiskey, and they didn't go with Beaver Trapper. We have a seasoning called Beaver Trapper, though, but they did Ode to Musk 80 proof Castorium flavored whiskey. Which I thought was crab, quite nice. Crab one would yeah, have to go with a shrimp oil or something. Uh, what's the difference between being a birder and an ornithologist? And like, how do you define a birder? And in that, answer me this. How do you become a birder of mammals? Why is there no equivalent? <laughs> well, you know, it's a matter of uh, dedication. It's a matter of obsession okay. between ornithologists. The ornithologist is the professional, right, that can um, maybe you're studying taxonomy. Maybe you're thinking about behavior. Maybe you're thinking about conservation and culture like I do. Uh -huh. So ornithologist, typically you're pushing towards that realm of scientific study. Got it. Of the of the creature, the birder is the uh, you know the hobbyist, the aficionado, somebody's out there following, and and birder bird watcher, you know, are sort of interchangeable. Even though I like to think about them kind of in different ways, you know, the bird watcher maybe is someone who um, is a little less um, avid in terms of following birds and going after the rarity and. Uh, traveling all over the world for it, maybe satisfied to be like a lot of us had to be during the pandemic to sit in the backyard and let the world come to you on wings. Mm -hmm. So lots of ornithologists are birders, but some of them aren't, right? Um, but it's just a matter of it's sort of, uh, you know, degrees of separation in terms of those people who are thinking about birds from a hobby perspective, they want to see those birds, as many of them as they can, uh, as many different species. So lots of birders have life lists. Do you keep a life list? Not anymore. You know? You've walked away from it. I, yeah. I, I mean, I know every bird that I've seen. But um, to me, for me now, it's really about sort of the connection with the place as well as the bird. Uh -huh. Right? So... You know, I was just up in uh, Denali National Park up at Camp Denali, and, you know, lots of the birds that I see in the wintertime, for example, a white-crowned sparrow. It's a, it's a bird in South Carolina that um, is relatively local, and you hear them sing sort of one plaintive mournful song, and you sort of see them in this way in this landscape, in the southern landscape. Well, you go up there, and those birds are singing, you know, seven or eight different variations of songs, hmm. right? And, um, and, and so you get to see the bird at the other half of its life. So that's, that's, that's watching to me. It, it, I wasn't so interested. Uh, yeah, I wanted to see lots of different birds up there. There were things that I hadn't seen that I wanted to see or that I wanted to see in the context of not being outside of the range as a rarity but being in their place and seeing them comfortable in their place. So that was watching to me. Got it. That was absorbing the birds in a way. What's what is the what is the number? I mean, 
if if you can make a list, mm. I wouldn't be able to tell you. I wouldn't. This would be a great trivia question for Spencer. How high does the list go? There are roughly ten thousand bird species in the world. Roughly, yeah, roughly ten thousand. Why so, is it not? Why is it not specific? Because of like taxonomic lumping and splitting. Yeah, I mean ornithology and and the ability to 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 split hairs, well feathers, in this case, um, birds that every year you know there are species that sort of morph in and out of one another. Mm-hmm. So the splitting, you know, sometimes gives birders. A larger life list. Yeah, I've got a question sort of for you there. So yeah. you said ten thousand. Mm-hmm. So in that ten thousand, are there, like, from your perspective, are there five different wild turkeys, or is there one? Well, you <laughs> know, there what, you go. If I'm going by the biological species concept, and those birds can interbreed and produce viable young, that's one species, right? But as a birder, as a as a well, now as a birder. Yeah, you know, you're going to list. I mean, and those birds have different behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So understanding that behavior and you think about how the different habitats have created or attributed some different character to those birds. Yep. So, you know, you can't argue that an eastern is like a ghouls, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, and you're going to, if you're a hunter, you're going to hunt those birds differently. I was I was impressed the first, you know, in my first sort of observations of of um, of Miriams in in Nebraska. I mean, they were everywhere, right? They just didn't seem wary like Easterns. And and people would tell me they'd say they'd say, well, because I was interested in hunting Miriams. They said, well, that's easy. You know, they're sort of like they they treated them like you were going to go out and hunt pigeons. Yeah, there there wasn't a whole lot of. Um, to me, seemingly value placed upon what that bird was from um, a hunting standpoint. Now, as a birder, you know, to see those birds and to see those white-tipped tail feathers and and all of that stuff and the way the bird was behaving in that habitat on those sandhills, you know, that made a difference Mm -hmm. to me. But from a conservation, and, and, and you have to think from really an organizational standpoint and those people concerned with the conservation of wild turkeys, then, you know, if you split, then there's the opportunity to think about turkeys in a different way. You know, it's sort of like the, you know, any species that we go after as, as birders and we think about, you're thinking about diversity. You're thinking about seeing all of these birds and all their permutations and well, sometimes, you know, as the AOS gets together and the, their taxonomic committee is thinking about these birds. Does it explain who that is? Oh, the, that, they're the bird gods, the American Ornithological Society. And you, you're a, a member or board member. You have some role there. Not now. No, no, you don't? Okay. no, 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 no. I've, I've, I've deboarded myself uh, for the most part. But you know, it's, it's their arguments every year about um, discussions. I guess I should say about who these birds are, what they are. And see, you keep hearing me say who birds are because I'm thinking about them maybe in a different way than a lot of folks think about them. Mm -hmm. So when it comes down to a species that someone has noticed some differences or um, in behavior, perhaps, or in occurrence of that bird in a given place or a given range, then they begin to think about splitting them. So I think about birds, a bird that, you know, winter wrens that are now Pacific wrens, and then in Europe, the wren, so um, an Aleutian wren. So 
that bird was once one species. But then it's sort of like the roll of the taxonomic dice, you know, and you come up and you got, you know, and you roll double sixes. There you go. You got more birds on your list. You know, one that, one uh, an occurrence, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that I followed because it kind of happened with a bird I was interested in and in my lifetime was when the blue grouse, right? Mm. Yeah. When the blue grouse ceased to exist and was broken into the dusky and sooty. Right. And it was like, there was like genuine things. I mean, one of them likes to, has a different pattern of how it does its call in the spring. One generally wants to do it on the ground. One generally wants to do it in a tree. Differences in the, what, what do you call that on a bird when he got that eyebrow? Eyebrow. No, that puffs up and shit. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah the yeah, eyebrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like differences there and all these behavioral differences. And then you see it and now you, you, you see it like reflected in the hunting regulations. Yeah. And it was, it was the outfit you're talking about. The American Ornithological Society said, hey, we got it wrong. There's one that lives in the coastal ranges. There's one in the interior ranges. And it ain't the same thing. You know? Yeah, you know, and, and those opportunities to split out and to, to recognize those birds for who they are. And, and in some ways, you know, the science allows you to kind of de-objectify the birds. So it's a, you know, it's an exercise that frustrates some people, especially when they lose species. If you are interested in maximizing the number of things on your list and all of a sudden they get lumped down into one or two, then you're like, oh, you know, um, some people don't like that. It's a thing. Sure. Is there a uh, a number against all birders are measured, right? So is, are there benchmark type of numbers out there that it's like you're not going to be taken seriously until you hit just this tell chunk you, of the yeah. list? Just tell us your number, man. Uh, you number. know what? <laughs> hit us with your number. Here's, here's the thing. I, you know, and people, bird watchers, birders keep lists down to, I mean, to the patch. You know, when I say the patch, that place maybe that they go constantly. I've got a place in uh, in South Carolina, Townville, for example. It's mostly, it's ag fields, ponds, farm ponds, abutting forests, and so a lot of diversity out there. And we see quite a few species that you'd expect to only see in the West or the Midwest. So you can go out there and you can... Um, certain times of year, you have a fair chance in a in a big flock of wintering eastern meadowlarks. If the birds are singing, or if you got a spotting scope, you can pick them out. You might pick out a couple of western meadowlarks. Hmm. You know, um, and so you know the list out there and that expanse. You know, if you can get mm, 200, 250 birds out in that patch in that localized area, that might be sort of a benchmark. But birding has become extraordinarily competitive. I mean, so you have these big years, these big days. Oh, yeah, it's... Yeah, like they, they've, there's like a, a, a very popular book about it, and then they did a movie, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. It's called Sorry, the, big the Big Year. year. Yeah. yeah. Big so year. if I'm understanding this correctly, it's not necessarily just one long list. It's a, here's the list that I acquired during one day in this region. He's yes. being evasive because he doesn't want to tell yeah, us. Yeah, you can do that. He doesn't want to tell us. Oh, you, you know, you can do that. My, no, what is my number? My number, I mean, yeah, yeah, like I said, I don't have, <laughs> you know, I don't have, I don't have a number as much as some days I'll go out, right, and I'll say, this is going to be a sparrow day. And I want to see as many of the sparrows that one might expect to see in this place in that day. And so it might just be a sparrow day for me. Let me, let me put it to you this way. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. ask you anymore. Yeah. Okay. 
It's one last final question. Yeah. It's nothing to do with you. Let's say you met a, a competitive, <laughs> like the worst type of competitive birder. Yeah. Okay. And they're just going to, they got to tell you. And they hit you with a number, like my life list number, knowing that the top end is around 10000 Right, right. They hit you with a number, like I have in my life with all the money I've spent, I've seen X birds. What would the number need to be for you to say, holy shit? Three, 4,000 birds. Okay. That's all. You know, wow. That's it, all I want to know. Hot, man. <laughs> That's all I, I want to know. So I mean, in birds. North America, so think about, you round up, you say North America, a thousand, there are 1,000 birds. Mm-hmm. And or bird species, but but really, you know, you've got these kids, you've got really young people who have have seen two or three thousand birds. You know, they're out there that aggressively searching for the species, so they're chasing. Um, they are are really thinking about the ways to maximize the number of birds they see. And they're traveling to foreign countries. Here's one. And don't yeah, know. maybe you'll answer this one. How yeah. many countries have you been to? Searching Let's see. for birds. Uh, Roughly, I mean. Yeah, about 10. Okay. You know, and mostly, though, taking students to those. Yeah. Got it. To, to, to those places. So, you know, I have a I have a bucket list of places that I want to go. But you've been, that, have you been to like all kind of eco regions yeah, of the world? Yeah. 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 Man, um, I, I haven't not, been to Ant- Antarctica. I haven't been there yet. I would not have thought that it, I don't know why, that it would be young people getting overly ambitious about it. Oh, yeah. That's hard to picture. It's, well, you know, you go, for example, if you go to a bird festival, like uh, the biggest week in American birding up in uh, Northwest Ohio, in the Black Swamp up there in Toledo, near Toledo, you go there in the springtime and you've got birds, migratory birds, uh, warblers, thrushes, tanagers that are piling up on the edge of Erie. And those Mm -hmm. birds are just piling up in there are boardwalks through that. And so... Um, Kim Coffin in the, in the Black Swamp Bird Obser- Observatory, they are doing science there to sort of keep track of some of those birds. But you have hundreds of thousands of people coming into, you ever been to Oregon, Ohio? No. You, well, now it, it's, you know, the interesting thing, you drive into, you drive out of Toledo, I don't know, maybe uh, 40 minutes, something like that. And all of a sudden you're in all this ag land in Northwest Ohio. You got the lake right there. You've got the forest and those birds pile up and people, all of those people come up there. And a lot of those people, you got kids who are carrying around camera lenses that are almost as long as they are tall. What do you I've say kids? That. What do you mean by kids? I'm talking about 12-year-olds. Hmm. Right? And they're, and they're, identif- they're identifying birds in ways, I mean, their, their sense of hearing and seeing and the way they notice. I mean, I, I can remember being down at Laguna. Um, actually not Laguna Atascosa, but it was a park in South Texas. And, um, this bird called, a, a, a paraki, you know, it's like a, a night jar, um, like a whippoorwill. There's this one spot where you go to see them, but you know, if you've ever seen like out here, it'd be a poor wheel. You know, you almost step on those birds. You can't see them. Mm-hmm. They're that well camouflaged. So here, these parakis are in the daytime, they're in a thicket. They're really super hard to see, and you're lucky. You know, you look long enough, long enough. Long, it's like looking for a rattlesnake in a in a brush pile. And suddenly, you see this bird. You see this one bird, and I'm standing there, and I see the one. Then I see two, 
then eventually I see maybe three or four of these birds and I'm really thinking, yeah, yeah, I got this. I got the, I got the visual down. This, this kid steps up next to me, maybe nine or 10 years old, sees 12. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. And so this is, this is like, this is like a roost. And so, you know, they're seeing things and, 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 and birding is such a great opportunity to give people access you know, to nature in that way. I mean, part of the reason that I don't kill more deer is because I'm out there bird watching. I mean, it's, right. it's you know, and, and so I'm looking and to, to see I'm at this different level with these birds and able to, to see them. So, you know, I have a deer stand. I, I try to keep a list on the deer stand. I'm not a great turkey hunter. Why? Because warblers are coming back through the woods during the spring season. And so I'm being anything but still watching these other birds instead of watching for the bird. Yeah. So um, that opportunity in all sorts of places to see them, and I think the numbers bear out that during the pandemic, even more of them got into into birding. It's almost, you know, if you think about that old, our son used to have a, um, you know, he had a Pokedex, right? And I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah, Pokedex is so Pokemon. You know the you know, oh, people, yeah, yeah. you know people going out looking for these these fictional creatures in these habitats. Yep. And I mean, you got a lot of adults still doing that. But you know, I think it would take us. It takes a slight tweak if you start sort of characterizing these birds with the superpowers that the Pokemon have. So the the migratory ability of a yellow warbler. Um, the singing ability of a wood thrush. I mean, this bird is singing triharmonics. So I think that's not a big leap that brings people into birding in a way to say, wow, you know, these are pretty fantastic creatures. And I can see them. They're real. You know, I don't right. have to, yeah. you, um, I don't have to contrive them. You mentioned kids. Did you, like, were birds something you were super interested in as a kid? Oh, geez, yeah. Uh, yeah, early. Like that's when you got... Early, yeah. yeah, because, you know, they were flying, and, and I tried, but, you know, too much jelly cake and gravity kind of um, kept that from happening. But probably I would, maybe when I was six or seven years old, you know, I was interested in birds because they were, they were sort of a vehicle for me to, to visit the rest of the world. And I always, I would climb my grandmother's pecan tree um, and, uh, and you'd get this, That's this, this birds. It's a pecan. Yeah. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> pecan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, I know tomato, tomato, whatever, but you know, it, it was, it gave me a chance to, to see from a bird's eye view, but I wasn't just satisfied with that. I wanted to fly. So then I began to, you know, do things like build wings out of cardboard boxes and make parachutes out of trash bags and trying to be Mary Poppins, all that kind of stuff. And none of that stuff worked, but birds didn't fail at that, right? You'd see them doing this thing that you wanted to do. And then my grandmother, she's the first person I ever saw in my She, I saw her feed birds. And no, she didn't have sunflower seeds. She didn't have millet. She didn't have all this stuff. What she did have were bags of grits, Hmm. And she would take a handful of grits and throw them out in the yard, in her backyard, when what she calls snowbirds, juncos, would come down in the wintertime. So there'd be this flock of juncos and other sparrows. And now I think, you know, my, my, my birder brain sort of reverts. And I'm like, man, I wish I had just looked more carefully. If I had known about the sparrows back then, maybe there was something that was showing up in her backyard that would, wasn't supposed to show up. 
but seeing her appreciation for those birds, I think, was was part of the of 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 my origin in that way. But flight, you know, you watch a you watch a red tailed hawk soar, and you're like, how does that happen? It looks like it's hung up there by a string. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch a peregrine falcon dive, and uh, it, it, I mean, and that's that's super. Yeah, that's super. That's that's beyond our ability, even if you put on one of those squirrel suits, you know, you're not going to be able to do that. (laughs) So all of that to me was fascinating enough that, um, I wanted to be a bird. I wanted to be a bird. So that it's been a lifelong, lifelong thing for me in the fascination. So to go from watching birds to, you know, having it sort of as my official hobby, but then being able to, to be a professional, to be an ornithologist, Man, you know, it's living a dream. Is is there a group of birds that you found yourself being partial to and falling in love with more than the rest for some reason? Yeah, that you know, and that's that that changes. But mm. sparrows, in part, um, because they're 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 brown, they're nondescript, and a lot of times people sort of overlook them, mm-hmm. right? So there's some allegories to human behavior and social what go, what goes on socially with us, but they are, when you take the time to look at a sparrow, you begin to see these colors on its back. You, you see these vermiculations, you see differences that really bring out this subtle beauty. Yeah. The duck hunter version for me would be, it's easy to right away fall in love with a wood duck, but then you eventually get to falling in love with how beautiful a gadwall is. Yes, yes. Seeing yes. those fine reds yeah. and grays. There you go. That's a good point. There you go. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sites are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sites. 
Try XS Sites for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's XSSites.com, code MEATEATER. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. During the time you were doing research, uh, you did some work with bluebirds. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you, you remember how, I mean, everybody knows this, where they're... Um, uh, you know, they're like a symbol of monogamy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what specifically you worked on, but I know you, you looked at like reproductive behavior in bluebirds. Yeah. 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 Um, the study was, was looking at uh, Dr. Patty Gawadi, Patricia Adair Gawadi, um, one of the, uh, one of the first ecofeminists and, and, and someone who had interest in, in sort of, trying to figure out if that whole idea of monogamy in passerines was um, whether she could verify that, um, if you will, by the science. And so what we do is um, she'd send out a crew of us, all male, um, to watch bluebirds at the box. Now, there, there was, and I say all male in terms of, of the, the crew that was working, um, there may have been a woman or two, but, you know, in my crew, it was all male, she'd send but, us out. But, but not by design. I think so. Oh, you think it was by design? Yeah, because um, here Patty is challenging, at least at that time, the known science, or at least challenging assumption. Uh-huh. And so to be out- That these and, birds mate uh, for life, that, and they stay bir- true to each other. That and- these birds mate for life. And here's a, here's a female scientist doing this work, challenging this convention. So I think it's pretty smart to have your observers- sort of on the other side of the table. And, you know, we see some of this with current research that has shown, you know, the assumption was that for the most part, male birds were doing most of the singing. Well, guess who the researchers were that were coming up with that? Most primarily male. When you put female researchers out in the field, they're beginning to find that you have non-males singing. So, you know, to sort of shuffle stuff around. Yeah, I got you. You know, it's like it's, people's like biases and yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's it's important. So we'd watch these boxes, and you know, you'd see a a, a a male at a box, and we would band these birds. Most of these birds were uniquely banded, had been captured and banded, and you'd see a female at the box, and 
because most birds aren't banded, people are seeing those birds and they're assuming, oh, there's the father, there's the mother, there's a happy family brewing inside that box. Well, when you begin to look at the behavior of the birds, you would see interactions between uh, different birds that would come into the territory. So you would see a male, for example, that might do a wing wave and warble or that would, um, in some sort of agonistic behavior, go at another bird, another male, and you say, oh, he's defending home. He's defending that female. You know, that's sort of the easy assumption. Yeah. You'd see that one female, and most, you know, in terms of the way we thought about birds for most of, of, of ornithology is that that demure female is being defended by that male. Well, you begin to really do these, and by the way, you see some of the most violent fights, some of the most um, aggression between females. Hmm. And uh, on on occasion, you find a, a dead bluebird, and you you know in, inspect it, and right in the back of the head, you know it would have would yeah, I mean it would have been like taken another out. female packed it in the yeah oh yeah, so you know that would happen on occasion. But then to look at the nestlings and do the genetic study on those birds in the nest, you begin to find out that those birds, those young, are coming from different birds than the birds that are tending the nest sometimes or that they're so, you know, I started I, in, in hindsight, you know, years later, I started calling it the, the, the Maury Povich bluebird project because it was like <laughs> the, the who's your daddy kind of, but you know, the question is also who's your mama. Yeah. Right. Because you, you begin to make assumptions about seeing single birds at a nest box and those assumptions were erroneous. So, you know, but we have a, a hummingbird feeder. Yeah. Yeah. And a hummingbird shows up. My kids like, they name them like hummingbird or whatever. Humming. Right. Then one day there's two. So they're like, oh, that must be a male and a female. It didn't matter what went on at that hummingbird <laughs> nest. It fit into like a very strict paradigm of that being a couple. Right. Yeah. And they were somewhere rearing young. And it just, they, they, they made this whole working for them that very much resembled what they see going on inside their house. There, there you, you go. Know, like, there, there you go. And then, you know, the next step, you know, people are thinking, well, the male chooses a mate and, you know, then they go on to, to, to have this family. Well, one of the most important things I think from her work and then this other work, other subsequent work has been female choice. That these females are choosing, that females are storing sperm, that they're making decisions, Right. There's this female choice in these birds. They're making decisions about who is, you know, who's parenting a brood. So all of that was, I mean, it was for me at the time, you know, being a, a, a field technician, being out there watching it and seeing, watching it unfold was, um, was this huge revelation. And it, it flew in the face of assumption which, you know, for a scientist, you know, that's like finding gold, right? When you're able to find something outside of, of the norm. So bluebird of happiness, well, maybe happiness doesn't just mean um, being with that one, what that one bird, so to speak. Maybe it means making the best decisions. You know, you're not just making it based upon the blueness of the male. You know, that was one of the, you know, the bluer males are more successful than less blue males or those kinds of things. Man, you'd find sometimes at a couple of boxes, you would find two adult females tending a nest and you would find nest dumping like you find in wood ducks, for mm -hmm. example. Okay. Yeah. So beginning to think about why things like that happen 
and to move past the convention that we have set up as human Two beings. female bluebirds. At the same box. Co-tending. Do they each have eggs? Yes. Huh. Yeah. And there's, and there's not like a, there's not like a resident male then. Uh, there is a male that might be there. Uh-huh. Right. But, but that, oh, sorry. But, but that paternity is uncertain. So that whole idea of uncertain paternity, are you the daddy? The question might not be yes or no, but the, the best answer is maybe mm-hmm. because the assumption was, yeah, you are. You've got to be to be investing time here in this nest. So the two females that had the two females that had a single nest and they each contributed eggs to the nest were probably contributing eggs from many males. Yeah, from you, uh, that I mean that happens. Yeah, you know you don't know for sure unless you're doing those analyses. So, but again, you're flying in the face of convention with that, <clears throat> and and that's cool stuff. And it's and it's not just the ornithology. So then you can begin to think about well, you know, what are the assumptions that we're making about mating patterns? Not just in passerines, but it then opens this whole world up to think about female choice. You know, because the you know what we're thinking when we're in the whitetail woods is what. This buck is making it. No, that buck, <laughs> that that buck is is tending. That buck might not be making the ultimate decision. So you know those. So you begin to think about beyond birds to mammals. You know, you were asking, well, who are these? You know, who's what's the the, the mammalian equivalent of of a birder? Well, you know, in, in some instances, it's a it's a it's a hunter. Mm-hmm. who's out watching behavior, who's seeing all of these animals and being able to say, well, yeah, what's, go- what's going on with this? How are our females, how are does making decisions or how are bucks making decisions? Who's the choosier sex? So that was the sort of the box that opened with that research. And that's when, you know, I'd be out there and I'd see all kinds of birds. I mean, I'd see bobolinks, I'd see meadowlarks, I'd see a scissor tail flycatcher or two on occasion, which at that time was pretty rare in South Carolina. So between these box checks, there were these opportunities to bird. But then being an ornithologist and shifting from ornithologist to bird watcher, from ornithologist to bird watcher, after a while, these things began to sort of blur. The lines began to blur. And for me, that's where the excitement occurs, when you can blur those lines between the two. And ornithology, probably more than any other um, kind of uh, taxonomic sort of following, has the most volunteers. It depends Mm. on all of these people who are out there gathering all this data, um, inputting a lot of it into eBird, doing Christmas bird counts, doing all these things, that data is what we ultimately have, the best data that we have to say anything about global or, or, or continental trends in birds. So it depends a lot on those people getting out there who nobody's paying as a professional ornithologist to do ornithology. Mm-hmm. And they are probably not calling themselves ornithologists, but ornithologists ultimately depend on birders, bird watchers, bird lovers, bird adorers, birdists. They ultimately depend on those people to pull the data back. They're not yeah, you bird or Twitter, right? Yeah, like there you go. Connecting a bunch of different ways, and yeah. it's the citizen science rise, which is super cool. It's, yeah. you get people uh, some ownership by uh getting their data collected. Yeah, I mean that, you know, that 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 crowdsourced science that's out there to to put 
10,000 people on the ground. I mean, try to pay those people, right? That's not, right. That's not going to happen. But the satisfaction from, from a lot of them derived to know that a little bit of what they do that gets in goes a long way to help bird conservation. So, you know, you, you were asking about favorite birds. The most intensively studied birds, the most intensively studied birds that we know the most about are waterfowl. Mm-hmm. You know, and because we, we need to, they need to, the scientists are feeding that data to managers who are then setting limits. Right. Adaptive harvest management. Adaptive, adaptive harvest management. And so one of the things when I blur the lines with as I'm teaching ornithology, I tell birders, if you really want to know your waterfowl, if you want to begin to know and understand gestalt and how to identify these birds on the wing from what's a that, What's wing, that word, gestalt? Gestalt. It's a feeling. Sort of a, so a feeling, not being able to see all the feel marks, but an impression oh. of the bird, an impression that gives you um, uh, the, the identification ultimately. So how the bird is flying. It's I'm, I'm glad there's a word for that because it's like the people that are good at it, it's like they shout it out. You're like, oh, give me a couple minutes, man. There, there, there <laughs> yeah, like, right? like, what are you even looking at? In, 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 like... in, ba- in bad weather, you know, in duck weather, which is typically bad weather at distances, right? And yeah, not like, how, being, like wow. no binoculars, not being able to stand up out of that blind and look, and they're telling you. Yeah, to know uh, how a widgeon moves, that, right? To, to know yeah. that. We had this conversation where, when, when I was hunting in the Mississippi Delta, we had this conversation where, like, in a lot of the places I grew up hunting and hunting now, it'd be like... You know, there's mallards and a couple pintails, mm-hmm. or it's like there's some teal and woodies, right? But down there, I don't know, it was nine, 10, 11, 12 oh, yeah. things. And I just get where I lose it all. But then people that, that grow up with that are shouting stuff out. I'm like, there's no possible way you could know. <laughs> then it gets close. You're like, how did that guy do that? And what happens like if a, you call like a feeling? <laughs> what happens if you call that waterfowl or a birder? Does anybody ever do that? No, no, no yeah, it doesn't no, happen. But they, doesn't. but they are right. They'd yeah, be like, so bullshit. <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting thing, though, right? Because if if you're a hunter making some of these claims, it, it all of a sudden it's biased information versus, um, you know, uh, a, a random observation taken from somebody as credible as a birder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is something I've run into in the past, and is really interesting. Like in in like we we talked about quail follow, and coyotes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, I was at a fish and game meeting. Mm-hmm. Lots of people talking about how there were no more wolves, mm. and it, we, there was this this idea of putting some money into a general fund to do more war, wolf control work in Idaho. And half the room there was like, "Well, there's no wolves to begin with. All the wolves are gone before you could hunt wolves." We used to see wolves all the time, and now that you can hunt wolves, we never see them. Um, hmm. And that was like uh, a, a generally well-taken observation from the general recreation crowd. Right, right. But when I stood up and identified myself as a hunter, I said, well, I run into wolf sign all the time. I've seen a few wolves, but I've seen plenty of sign. That is a biased opinion because I'm there – wanting to take elk out of the woods uh and it's yeah. not taken into consideration that i'm also where the wolves are yeah 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 right. yeah um, and so when uh you have uh, a a quote consumptive user making a report oftentimes i've seen it where those reports are discounted 
I just had this conversation with, uh, I'll just talk about him. You know, he's not here. I had this conversation with Lauren where one of our camera guys was telling me. He Happy was, birthday, Lauren. Lawrence's Big birthday. 50. He was snowmobiling in a mountain range that I didn't know had links. And he sang, I saw links in that mountain range. And then I spent 10 minutes trying to convince him that he was looking at a bobcat to which he got a little frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yep. It's just like, you like, there's a lot, you know, when it comes to the, the observational, you know, there's. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody's not taking everybody at face value. But if Cal had said that, you'd have been like, no shit. Maybe. You did it because he's a camera guy who doesn't hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, the, uh, <laughs> I did to him what I don't like people doing to me. Well, well, yeah. look in in some in some states I don't know about Montana, but in some states waterfowlers have to pass proficiency tests. Yeah, especially oh. states where you have, like, uh, for example, Oregon, right, where you have the dusky goose. Mm-hmm. That's like there's very few of them. They're in a very specific place. You got to know exactly how to identify them on the wing. Yeah, it looks mostly like a snow goose. <laughs> yeah, it's like very different. Until it's not. And Until then the not. thing is, if that bird is in your bag, you know, you're going to, as a as a waterfowler, you're going to pay a penalty, a severe penalty for that. Birders don't pay severe penalties for misidentifying a bird with binoculars. <laughs> right. I mean, That's other other point. other than losing cred. <laughs> they from, should, damn it. They, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Other other than that, you know, and, and in the community, that can be a strong thing. And it can also be a deterrent to bringing other people forward in birding. You know, if somebody is so fanatical that they're going to criticize somebody because they misidentified a house finch as a purple finch. Yeah. And then they're suddenly persona non grata because they misidentified that one bird. That um, one time. That Yeah, that's not cool. Right. You know, so that that's and those are some of the the, the blurred lines that you get. In, in this thing that we do. And of course, people run across the gamut. Most, most birders are perfectly fine, really nice, you know, people who want to involve others. But then you run into those folks that that's the pressure, right? That they want to positively, and you, everybody wants to positively identify these things. Yeah. But I run into, you know, situations where um, I've got to out-counsel people on an identification that that probably was not an ivy bill woodpecker at your feeder. <laughs> and right. and you know and <laughs> right. and and the way that we do that is not me discounting who they are as a person because they misidentified that bird but really to you know to have a conversation about it so what what did you see yeah and mm-hmm. and and I'll tell you 9 times out of 10 people come around and they you can hear you can hear the change and they're calling the field marks and they're saying oh well yeah you know that that probably was affiliated boom there you go I'm glad you say affiliated you know, instead of pileated. Yeah, you yeah. kind of screwed up on pecans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I made up for it, right? I want to uh, I want to do a bunch of quick hit things. Yeah. So I'm going to hit you with some, I'm going to hit you with some things and then, because uh, I want to get, I want to burn through some stuff. Cool. One of our guys who's not here um, had this one for you. How, are you for the Camp Robber? Like Whiskey yeah. Jacks, oh, yeah, yeah, Grey yeah, Jays? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do they find, when you kill an elk in the mountains, how do they know within 30 seconds? They're always watching. It's visual. It's well, not smell. N- probably not. Even though we, you know, we know that some birds have more and a, a more acute sense of smell than we thought. But you know, think about how those birds just appear out of nowhere. Yep. And there's a network. They're also watching other things. 
right? So they're they're also watching, but they're usually the first ones, from my understanding, to get to. I think about you know up in Denali again. Here I get into camp, and suddenly here are you know here are four whiskey jacks. Yep. there they are. I didn't see whiskey jacks again those two weeks I was up there. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, didn't see them. <laughs> yeah, and you say they're I, always watching, but like in the case of coming to a, ki- a hunter's kill, mm-hmm. like are they watching the person? Like are they like I think something could happen here? I see them come and check on you whether you've killed something or not. That that's so they there's like a learning process. They're like that guy, something good might happen here. It's you know, and and this is again sort of the fluid, the the beautifully fluid nature of of the science is that we're learning so we can't keep up with what birds know, how they learn. So, you know, jays are crow cousins. Mm-hmm. You know, as we know and, and sort of how we measure, we say, oh, well, they're extremely intelligent. But we don't know the stat, you know, how they learn, how fast they learn, you know, being able to track a hunter to say or to think about you as a predator. Right. So we know that some birds follow predators, you know, with that whole idea right. of benefiting from the kill. What's to keep a whiskey jack from seeing you that way? Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, again, to to loosen the bounds of convention and sort of think about um, part of it is 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 ego on our part, hubris, to to think, well, yeah, we're the only ones who can do that. Yeah, and um, and to to not project our measures of intelligence on other creatures. I, I do make sure that they know. I'm providing yeah. them. For yeah, them. you tell them that. You tell oh, yeah. them that. Oh, I'm fully talking to them. I'm throwing sinew high up in trees. I'd, I'd, we're, I, mm. I want to let them know that if they were to come across a bunch of elk on a day when they're not talking, they can let me know, and, and it's going to one win, we all win. Those things, you know? those things in magpies, like magpies can really choke down a lot of fat, man. You're like, oh, how yeah. can they fly away? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, think, I mean, if... And, and I, I don't have specific examples, but if you think about indigenous culture and you think about um, what people have known for a very long time, how to watch birds to perhaps put them on game, but also in terms of what you're doing, saying, showing appreciation to that bird and what that bird learns or what, what any of these things are. You know, it's again why I get to this point of talking about birds oftentimes more as who's than what's, mm-hmm. you know, to try to give some sort of credit for um, what we don't know about them. You know, yeah, I make assumptions like everybody else on um, on certain birds that maybe this shrike, this loggerhead shrike that I'm seeing, this butcher bird that, you know, I've kind of fallen in love with because they're they're such cool birds. They they code switch, right? They're passerines, um, but they're also raptorial in what they in terms of what they do. Their feet aren't strong enough to to carry prey and hold it, so they impale their prey on thorns and barbed wire fences and that kind of thing. That's 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 super cool. Yeah, that's why. But you know, to watch that bird, I'm seeing I've seen what I think I haven't marked the bird, I haven't banded it. But for like three, four years, this bird that hangs out in the same corner of one of my patches. And so I make certain assumptions, poetic assumptions maybe, about this bird and who it is. And man, I've written this bird letters, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because it's, 
for me, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's like a kind of worship to be able to have a relationship with a creature in that way across those boundaries. And so I can respect it for what it does, who it is, what it is. And I don't know what that bird's thinking of me at all, but it gives me this sort of deeper move into this place of, 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 of being a bird watcher, of being a bird adorer. So, you know, that's the way that I try to, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same way in sitting in a deer stand and, and watching and sometimes getting so caught up that I'm not taking a shot or I'm thinking about those animals in sort of these different ways. So all of it is kind of line blurring for me. And ornithology is a birding is a perfect way to sort of get into that, into that space. So, you know, I, I talked to, to, to my, 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 my mentor, she's still my mentor, Patty Gawadi from time to time. You know, and I thank her all the time for that. She taught me how to be a scientist. You know, that whole idea of getting out there and objectively gathering the data and being rigorous. I mean, it was hard work. But then also for her helping me understand how you began to make the linkages between, you know, science and perhaps even policy. Because every every policy begins with with one person's agenda. And so... It's blurry, and and birds are the way that I go through life blurry. I, I, I dig who they are, and I sometimes still wish I was a bird, so there's that. Uh, here's the next one. In 50 years, uh, or however, you handle this however you want. In 50 years, are people hunting bobwhite quail in the American South? Yeah, because they've raised them in pens, and they're putting them out. Oh, that's, mm. what, that's, what, that's what it's going to take? I, I, I don't think that's – I think it would take – let me put it this way. Uh, we aren't approaching it the right way, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, you know, to have a, a, a put-and-take fishery, as it were, so a put-and-take huntery here is, is basically what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, you got to look at the ethic of the hunter. If we're talking about hunter conservationists, then we got a chance. If we're talking about people who just want to go in, put a kernel of corn on a hook and get a trout, then probably not. What is what like what in your view is driving or drove the decline or is it the same like death by a thousand cuts kind of thing? I think it's death by a thousand cuts, Steve. But I I, I think a lot of it is um, is cultural. You know, when you look at the loss of the small family farm, mm-hmm. um, when you look at clean farming ditch to ditch. Mm-hmm. When you think about um, what we lost in that, in terms of, of this edge habitat, of these patches, this patchwork quilt across landscapes, that um, as you know, agriculture became more um, efficient, mm-hmm. then you know people are are farming row to row. You can't lose a single inch of that of that field. And so those ditches that used to grow up in weedy tangles and briars and ragweed, all that stuff, you lose that. Well, then you compound that with something like red imported fire ants. Um, that and to see that that's a that's horrific to see fire ants on a nest of hatching bobwhite quail eggs. That's and and to see those you know those 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 chicks can't even some they can't even get out of the shell before they're being eaten alive. Hmm. So you've got that, you've got, 
in some of these landscapes proliferation of, um, of, of edge predators, but what we discount in terms of edge predators is proliferation of, of uh, outdoor cats mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, that are killing billions and billions of birds. So, you know, keep fluffy inside. So all of those things do compound it. But then again, you know, I say where effort is spread out, where all your eggs aren't in one basket, you know, this isn't, again, any theory that I can prove. But I think that network, those patches of small farms were an opportunity to mitigate damage large scale. Got it. Um, And so culturally, you just don't see those small family farms. You don't you don't you don't see them. And I think that's a part of the issue. And I also think, you know, it's been burned into our minds now over the last few decades of quail decline that the only place that quail are going to get saved is in those large 10,000 acre land holdings where they're doing fantastic management, but they're doing management at a scale of both ecology and economy that a 40 acre landholder is not going to be able to accomplish so that's a to me that's a cultural issue um, of of how we think about it and how our mindset has changed about what quail are. So it used to be you know Bob White partridges. Now it's gentleman Bob, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. you might be out there with a fifty thousand um, dollar shotgun after these birds with dogs that have got bloodlines that have gone on forever, um, eating lunch in the middle of these piney woods on. You know, fine linen and um, and and bone wear, <laughs> and then you get back out there to the next group of quail. Well, people who are doing that, you know, they want to push coveys, and so we have to ask ourselves the question: um, Do we want quail just for hunting, for killing, or do we want the experience of having those birds on landscapes in ways that is good for the bird? And good for the hunter, right? And I think we can. I think we can do that. I think we can do that. I mean, I you know, on on my piece of land in um, in '96 in Greenwood County, South Carolina, man, I remember <laughs> I was actually coming out of the field one day, and something all of a sudden, I'd stopped at the gate, and and I, all these things start running around my feet, and they're button quail, you know, they're these little these little bumblebee quail, rather. And to have quail reproducing on that property to me was like having some endangered species on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that they within I think, that setting within that within that setting, and yeah. to know that you know that's land that's been in my family for generations, and now I have the responsibility of stewarding it. That Bob White quail have become for me one of the things that I want to manage for. So how do I do that on that acreage? I mean, I'm not rich. How do I how do I get it burned? How do I keep the timber thinned? You know, how do I keep um, Chickasaw plum um, uh, as as part of that landscape? All of that is something that I think about, and it's not just thinking about hearing that bird whistle. It's thinking about what the rest of that land can be because of that bird. Uh, you just mentioned your family's parcel, and I, I'm a little I, I'm a little hazy on some of the details from your book, but explain how, like, I remember that your family came as slaves to the area where you still reside in the 1790s. Mm, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. What, like, what was the, what was the pathway from that, from being there on the landscape 
as a slave to you guys having family farms? Did you go, did your, did your ancestors go through like sharecropping and into, into land ownership down the road and far in agriculture? Cause you had like, you grew up on a family farm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's one of the mysteries and, and, um, one of the things that, that frequently happens, especially with descendants of enslaved and black families is those records sort of get muddled. From all I can tell, I have never heard any of my family talk about sharecropping. Mm -hmm. And so when we came into this land, they may have, right? Um, But my recollection and thinking about um, the land and the research that I've been able to do is that it came into our possession, at least the land that we were on, probably when my grandfather got back from World War I. Got it. So, and he came back from World War I in, um, in 1908, late 1918, early 1919. So who was in possession? And he became a farmer. Yes. Yeah. 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 He, you know, he was farming the land. It, you know, amazingly, when I look at what Edgefield was politically and, and, and how black folks were being treated, that my grandfather became a successful farmer, had a successful, during the Depression, egg and milk business hmm. and was receiving farm aid. I found some of his old maps was receiving farm service agency assistance in 1932. So, you know, it speaks to this stewardship. Um, but when that land came, actually, if it came into possession before that, now there are stories, um, that sort of circulate around the family about, well, he, that somehow he came back from world war one and, had gold or these other things. I don't know. They're interesting stories to consider. But what I want to know is I really had wanna... gold mean like like found it or like yeah, they came back somehow came back from from World War One bearing gold. You know, bearing gold. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? Sure, I, I remember yeah. my you know my brother used to wander around the woods. I mean, he sort of became obsessed. <laughs> with, seriously, he became obsessed with it. You know, and and he'd go oh, out. Like the gold yeah. was there. Yeah, yeah. That he that he family was, legend. That's that fun he, stuff. Yeah, right? that he was going out looking for, looking for this gold. But um, that's one of the things that sort of eats at me is w- wanting to know that history more completely. And it's in in. It's not like waiting in some library somewhere. No, it's gone. No, no, and and that's what's happened in the South with a lot of um, with a lot of history, especially a lot of Black history. A lot of it's been burned, mm-hmm. got burned up in, in in courthouses, burning down. And it's and it's always interesting to me how courthouses were the first things to burn down. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's and so you have to sort of uh, stitch together this history from this one. So I go from you know this this paternal ancestor of of coming in about 1790, right? And then picking up when I do, you know, and I belong to some of these ancestry groups and that kind of thing, picking up ancestors in the 1830s, right? So what was happening between 1790 and 1830? And then an ancestor that was brought in on an illegal importation, slavery importation became illegal, I think 1805, 1807, something like that. So then breeding plantations ramped up because the production of, of enslaved depended upon domestic production. That sounds sick to even so, talk but, about. But, that. but it was 60 years before the abolition of slavery that they made that you couldn't import slaves. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so then 
there's an ancestor that comes into Jekyll Island, Georgia in 1857 on a converted yacht. And you've, you've heard about um, the, 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 um, the ship that was found, the, the, the slave ship that was found down in, um, in Alabama. Those were bets. People were playing games with this stuff. So, because um, the bet was, well, we can beat the embargo. So this ancestor that comes in in 1857 from the Congo, her name was Lucy, she came in to Jekyll Island, Georgia, and she was three years old. So how does she fit into my into my family's history? You know, how did did Harry have children? This enslaved man who was brought south in 1790 by the Lanham brothers. And then the interesting part of that, those Lanham brothers, they were good friends with that guy over in Augusta who was, <laughs> you know, was going to prolong enslavement, Eli Whitney. Mm -hmm. So that those stories, so you know, when you have those kind of stories wrapped up in your history, hold you're on, trying hold to. On. You lost me on Eli Whitney. Yeah, that's the, the guy that invented the cotton gin. Yeah, exactly. But how does that? How did that? I'm not arguing one way or the other because I don't really understand. But that was the way. Wasn't didn't that make? Oh, because that increased production. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. he found a way to pull the seeds out of yes. cotton. Oh, Ex so then you could get you could yeah you could handle more of it. Yeah, I got yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some some historians say that that prolonged it by about 50 years. Got it. It just made it made like more yeah made it more profitable yeah. and drove more business. Exa yeah. Exactly. I got, you. I got you. So so those are bits and pieces of this quilt, you know that that you try to stitch together. Mm -hmm. Um, and and the land for me is is that is really that template. That I'm trying to, I guess that that back batting on the quilt, if we're going to stay with that analogy, that you put these pieces on, and trying to find how these all these pieces fit together, and some of it can never be known. When right? you said the Lanham brothers, yeah, who, like the 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 Lanhams, Josiah Lanham and his brother, who came south from the Mid Atlantic, most likely around Prince George's County, mm -hmm. Maryland. Um, they came south. There was a great sell-off of enslaved around the mid-Atlantic because they had been farming primarily, what, tobacco, and tobacco burns up soil. And some of these founding fathers were going broke. And so they began, there was this huge sell-off of enslaved around 1790 south, especially to the deep south with cotton production, sugarcane production down in places like Louisiana, but also to breeding plantations. And so... Harry, uh, you know, I have to check myself sometimes when I say it. Harry was in in some ways fortunate in that he didn't end up deep, deeper south, right? That he ended up um, in South Carolina in the Piedmont that's productive for cotton, but it's not nearly as productive as the Black Belt of Alabama because of those soils. Yep. So in, in thinking about sort of, you know, where fortune, you know, what, what is that saying? Fortune favors the, the brave or whatever. Um, you know, fortune, you know, lucky or I can't, I know what you're saying. Bold. Yeah. yeah. Fortune favors the bold. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. But, but here's a case where, you know, fortune favored, um, you know, poor soils because to, to, to be put further, to be put deeper into hell, um, into the deep, deep South where you were getting maybe 10 bales of cotton per acre, whereas only in South Carolina, maybe you're only getting two bales of cotton per acre. That was a, that was a, that was a difference in, in life, or to be down in those sugarcane plantations down in Louisiana, or to be somebody's breeding stock as a human being. So, 
I think about all of that stuff, and I'm always connecting it to land. Um, and then I'm always connecting that to birds because birds are sort of the conduit for me to think about history because I think about some of the birds that I see at present, and I'm wondering what those birds' ancestors saw or what they flew over. Mm-hmm. And yeah. likewise, that my ancestors were watching birds, that birds were inspirations for them because the birds were flying free. Mm-hmm. And that maybe we held that in common, that they wanted to be free as birds and that I wanted to be a bird and free. So, you know, there's convergence there, man, all the time in watching birds. So, yeah, it's, um, it's uh, you know, maybe I'm listing sort of different kinds of things these days, but um, those birds are, are stitching together time and landscapes for me in ways that um, few other things can. Hey, it's Steve here. Picture this. You're on the African Serengeti and a lion appears out of nowhere and is barreling down on you. Well, when the difference between life and death is mere seconds, you want a firearm sight you can trust. That's why XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied it to modern defensive handguns. Made in America since 1996, XS Sights now offer a variety of sight pictures. As a second-generation, family-owned, Texas-based business, they believe in products that actually work. And since 70% of self-defense scenarios happen in low light, their quick-to-acquire sights are designed to help in just that situation. It's very simple, very intuitive, very clean sights. Try XS Sights for yourself and see why they're the brand trusted by industry leaders. Now, if you shop today at XSSites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. That's XSSites.com, code MEATEATER. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. Hey, heads up all you anglers. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in Montana, based in Helena. After building custom fly rods for more than 25 years, Montana native and lifelong fly fisherman Scott Joyner decided to apply his knowledge in designing three performance-driven fly rod models. These rods were designed to be performance rods and to withstand the abuse that a fishing guide's equipment endures day in day out their fly rods are named after montana fish wildlife and parks fishing access sites which is such a cool idea and each model of fly rod is a tribute to montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit their rods capture the look feel and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod montana casting company fly rods have been developed to achieve the perfect balance of performance durability and legacy quality craftsmanship head to montanacastingco.com and use code meateater20 at checkout for a one-time 20 percent off discount i want to tell you about an american-made success story and black buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches black buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use black buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. In your career, you made a conscious uh I hope I'm not wrong on this, or you might put it a different way, but you made a conscious switch from like hard science, or you could put it how you want to put it, but mm-hmm. like from hard science to sort of uh, culture, people, interpretive mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Is that, yeah. is that yeah. how you describe it? Yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll always be a scientist, uh, always be a naturalist, always be an ornithologist. But part of what I wanted to do was to be able to move that science into the masses. Because you think about, um, and, and you know, I always call the science that we do the scripture, really. I mean, it's, it's critically important um, to not deny good science and that data that tells us what's going on, mm-hmm. that gives us some idea of the patterns that are out there. But then what good is it if you've got 900 pages of of data and people don't bother to read any of it? So sometimes it's important to be able to take reams of data and get them down to a digestible digestible portion. I mean, you you read different reports, but if, if, if our attention span is what we can see or pay attention to during a traffic light stop, then people aren't going to people aren't going to read those reams of data so i wanted to move to a place of really being able to sort of um get those to paint pictures with creative writing that moves people to think about the science to think about what's going on out there so then maybe they feel something about it mm-hmm. my my you know for most science the um, the objective is not to get people to feel something about it, but to think about it, right? So to think, then, you know, the science probably doesn't care. It doesn't care whether you feel something about it or not. My whole idea is to arc the other way, you know, to get you to feel something about it so then you think about it. And if you feel something about it, think about it, feel, think, feel, think, feel, think, feel, think, maybe that's a spark, you know. Maybe you get a spark from that reaction back and forth and you do something about it, not just damn read about it, but do something about it. So that's the, um, you know, that's the the transition that I've I've willingly made because you know you stand in front of a classroom of 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 nineteen and twenty year olds, and as you know, and Aldo Leopold, Leopold talked about, you know, the danger of being an ecologist was living in a world of wounds, mm. and and. Um, God, man, that dude was like a quote factory. Yeah, man. Quote, quote factory, man. <laughs> he was. You know, so like... It's 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 but very prescient, right? Way ahead of his time in so many ways. But if you're in front of a classroom and you're teaching, you're doing this teaching, doing this teaching, and these students, and you could see them, I could see them, and they were just like their faces are like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with all this? 
you're just feeding them this data day after day after day of how things are going south and there's not going to be anything left for you to deal with. Well, you know, I think you got to infuse some hope so that people have some motivation for doing something rather than just sticking their heads in the sand and saying, you know, fuck it. I'm not, this is not for me. Let me go over in this department and do this. So that whole idea of moving the science to a place where I get you here, then I can get you here. And I mean, (laughs) you know, marketers know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's 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 not to in any way diminish or deny the science, but to give it an opportunity to dwell in heart as well as head. And you can do. I mean, you know, the whole idea of a picture worth a thousand words. You know, I look at this wall here, and I can. I mean, there's science all over that wall. Now, um, is it going to pass peer review? Certain peer review, it's going to pass. Others are going to decry it as something else. So, but I, I think it's important for us as scientists, especially as conservation scientists, it always bothers me when I hear people say, well, I'm not an advocate, you know, I'm a scientist. Well, conservation to me means that you have to be an advocate. I, I don't see the separation and I don't think being a scientist means that you can't be an advocate. Sure, you gather, you're an objective data gatherer. That's your job, to gather data objectively, to report that data objectively. But then, damn it, do something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, if there are declines, what do you do about those declines? Do you just say there is declines and then report the next decline and report the next decline and report the next decline? Well, it's a little it's, hypocritical, right? It's like, how many folks do you know that go out and get that grant to go study and gather data on something they don't give a shit about? Oh, happens all the time, right? Really? I mean, it, oh, sure it does. Certainly it does. I mean, and then we're on these these two and four year grant cycles. And so I think um, that 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 where we are as scientists, as conservationists. OK, so let me let me let me paint a picture here. So a bridge, you know, think about how so many people came into some sort of knowing about climate change. How did that happen? Well, it was all about drowning polar bears. Mm hmm. It's yeah. all about drowning polar bears. Now, certain sets of people care about drowning polar bears. I mean, now, let me say I love polar bears. I'm not trying to take anything away from polar bears. I want them to be fine. Not trying to pull the iceberg I, out I, from I, under their fuzzy I, feet. Exactly. <laughs> but also, that same climate that's melting the polar ice caps is also impacting the way people breathe, especially people of color who have... These these asthmatic conditions, for example, at almost a tenfold rate of white kids. But people weren't talking or kids or white kids from Appalachia who have a hard time breathing. But nobody was talking about that. They were talking about climate change and polar bears, climate change and polar bears. Why not arc that? Okay, arc that science outside into sociology, begin to tell the stories evocatively of how polar bears are drowning in rising seas but people in the lower ninth ward are also drowning in those rising seas. There is this connection between the great white bear and black black people. So in thinking about that kind of connection, you know, it's hard to get that into peer review and journal of wildlife management. Yeah. I mean, really, and, and that's not the place for it. So where does that work go? Where do I put that work? I'm going to put that work somewhere where it reaches the masses. I, you know, one of the experiments that now I've never done it, but I it's one of those things I'm going to say 
Uh, I'm going to put good money that if I published an article, I don't know, on painted bunning productivity in the um, coastal plain of South Carolina. Cal would report on it. There you go. <laughs> so it would be in Cal's. It would be in Cal's review. So so so, so 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 there it is in the journal. And I'd tie it back to feral cats. Okay. <laughs> so good. Good for you. He's like just one but, more reason. But, but if shoot you, a cat. But if you do that, you tied it to feral cats, right? And you've shown in this, you know, in this journal article that you know whatever the 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 impacts are. So there's the there's the journal. Put that on the table at the dentist office. Write that same article, put it in the journal, put it in South Carolina Wildlife, and maybe, you know, you've, you've been patient enough as a photographer, you've got, you know, t- a tabby with a, with a male painted bunning in its jaws, mm-hmm. and it's a 800-word essay. What gets read? Yeah. Yeah. What gets read? Same data. Same data. There's no statistical analysis presented really. Well, maybe there is the results are presented in that in that South Carolina Wildlife magazine, but that's the challenge, mm-hmm. right? To how how do we get that science done? And from a conservation standpoint, um, I think it, yeah, you, we got to chase we got to chase grant dollars. But to me, the you know the 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 proof in the pudding at the end of the day is not just how many articles you've published, but what you've done for conservation beyond that, beyond those words. How do those words come into impact? And so sometimes those words come into impact and that scientist continues that work beyond the four-year cycle. And that's where you see the love come out in the science. When people dedicate their lives to a question, you know, and they're really working to push that and to connect with the managers on the ground, that they haven't separated that science in a way so that they say, well, now I'm done with it. It's up to you. So to stay connected with it, I think, is important. It's no different than, you know, some commander staying in connection with, with his, her, or their troops. To stay in connection with that science in some way, to move it forward, adaptive research and management, that's a cycle. And somewhere in that cycle of adaptive research and management, I think, is love and care. I mean, that's just me, but I, don't, I can't see conservation existing without love and care. That's just part of it. Uh, that wasn't a quickie. I know. No, that was, a, that was a soapbox. I but I do have one that I gotta hit. Okay, is migration, bird uh-huh. migration. Like, what's the most compelling thing about how birds migrate that we know or have researched? The most compelling thing is that, <laughs> you know, to me is is thinking about one, thinking about a warbler that weighs as much as, uh, you know, a half handful of paper clips that that bird launches off of the Yucatan and that that bird chooses to fly across the Gulf of Mexico some 600 miles to the, to the, to the Gulf Coast Chenears of Louisiana. And I have seen some of these birds when they're coming ashore, like in, in Texas. I've seen a, a Baltimore Oriole barely above the waves. In fact, you know, that some of these birds get taken out by fish. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to me, that that's a this 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 heroic story that's compelling. But the science of it, again, is how birds do it. The, the physiology to be able to flap nonstop. For all those hours, and if you want to really get at some kids, you know, if you're ever talking about it in school, you'll tell kids this and they're like, oh, that's not such a big deal. And you say, OK, 
I'll give, I don't know, $20, whatever amount of money to anybody who can keep their arms going like this for the next hour. Nobody can do that. And a bird and a bird does it for a day. So, you know, that the the capacity of birds to do what they do in migration is amazing to me that, you know, we're our understanding of how they find their way in part. You know, it's a multiplicity of things by star compass, by polarized light, some birds by smell, um, by orienting to um, to to the Earth's compass. All of that is is extraordinarily compelling and that it's happening for songbirds, for example, and other birds, too. But songbirds, we think of this is happening at night. Right. You know, you know, we've got our thumbs in our mouths and snoring. And these birds are passing overhead. And then in the morning you wake up and there they are. And then. I've never te- seen a migrating coot. Not yeah, well, once. And see, and that, show and, up. And, and that, that's the thing. That's the thing. Something like, you know, you think about rails. Yeah. And how Sora just show up in the weirdest places. They'll show up in, you know, downtown Greenville, South Carolina. And you see a, and you see a Sora and it's like you got to force it to fly. But here these birds are flying hundreds or thousands of miles. A black rail. I mean, a black rail, it looks, you know, almost like a, you know, a baby chick. Uh, like a, and, and, and here this bird is making its way through wetlands, we presume, to some, to some choice place. So I'm, I'm always enthralled by what we know, but I'm also very inspired by what we don't know. And then what we can never know. Because there's some of that stuff. We can never know how that bird makes that decision. What goes off in its brain to say, you know, and I'm sure somebody said, well, you know, when tailwinds reach a certain speed, you know, when when the daylight or or, or hours, daylight hours are at a certain lumens, um, it's this time of year, the bird has this fat condition, then the probability of it rising in migratory behavior or, or to exhibit Zuganru is this. Right. Yeah, that data's out there. But then there's the part of this bird's brain we can't get into. And we can't we can't know what that feels like to be a bird. Yeah, and we can know they do those things on a population level, but ultimately they're individuals. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that one bird, you know, for for a couple of years, there was a scarlet tanager that would show up and notice I'm saying a scarlet tanager. I would say some scarlet tanagers. But this this bird that shows up and it would sing from the top of this red mulberry tree. And it would sing into the sun. And I, I've, I've watched this bird and imagine, you know, this bird is making a transition from the Peruvian Amazon to the Piedmont of South Carolina. Right. You know, and, and you're sitting about, in one tree. And sitting, and you guys are talking about jaguars, you know, and it's probably looking down at jaguars, its head to dodge forest falcons. At some point, <laughs> it's passed by a harpy eagle, maybe. And now it's here in my yard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wild. Right. That's, Going like, oh, yeah, remember what uh, power lines are like. That, that, boom. The- boom. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's this other cat down there that's more likely to take me out than that Jaguar did. Uh, yeah. Hey, well, what's, uh, what's the latest thinking on whether you're uh, good or evil if you have a bird feeder? <laughs> well, I must be evil because I have bird feeders. Okay. Lay right. it on. Lay it on. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I, I think you have to be, well... Certainly when, if you have like avian flu, right? 
um, or you have um, zoonoses that you notice around your feeder, or you get advisory. What are zoonoses? Um, diseases. Okay. You know, if 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 birds are being impacted. Um, by some of these being densely packed at feeders. Yeah, like you got dead birds laying over the, right, all over the yard. <laughs> yeah, and clean and clean your feeder. Uh-huh. You know, you shouldn't have so much gunk in your feeder that you can't tell what's in there other than sort of the mossy stuff that's growing on the outside of it that's also growing on the inside. So um, if you're going to have feeders, you have to be a responsible feeder keeper. Clean your feeders on the regular. Clean the watering sources on the regular. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feed a whole lot in the summertime because those birds are going out and getting the protein that they need from soft-bodied insects and the like for um, for their nestlings. So I'll ramp it up in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I really love feeding birds um, in transit. Um, part of it is in my head, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, as part of this patchwork of this miraculous deal of migration, I want to be a I want to be a positive in that. So um, I certainly don't think it's an evil. Okay. You know, I think it's a I think it's a positive that people can do. It brings wildlife to them. It brings them closer. But I think you have to think about how you do it. Like anything, you got to be responsible with it. Don't just throw stuff out there and expect things to go well if you don't tend to it. Yeah. Because things can go sideways. You had years ago when when Crin and I were first talking about having you on, we found a thing you'd done where it was uh like it was sort of the nine rules yeah of being a of being a black birder yeah or yep. how to, nine rules for birding while black and yeah. when i watched the video like it, you know it was funny right? right it was it was like it was like funny um you got it like the, the delivery was fun right yeah but i i read interviews with you about when you compiled those mm-hmm. and it definitely wasn't always fun and games no i you know when, um, when that was when you were in that space right yeah i you know it's it's i remember getting the the email from the editor who said you know would you write something towards this and she didn't say nine rules or anything like that i said sure and she said you know if you can get back to me in a couple of weeks i'll be fine i had the draft back to her in a little over an hour <laughs> Cause I, I mean, I'd lived it, <laughs> right? I'd, I'd, I'd lived all this stuff, but you know, my dad used to have a saying. He'd say, um, he said, "That's laughable, but not funny." Oh, and mm. um, and so I remember I got a question. That's, at good. A, That's a good saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, he, <laughs> so it's at a film festival, and someone, and and you could hear this. You know, you could hear the laughter come up, and then you hear it go down, mm. right? And and you could almost hear the uncertainty in laughter. And somebody just asked, they said, you know, yeah, this was funny, but then I had, I laughed, but then I wasn't sure whether I should be laughing. And, you know, for satire, I think, which is what this is, the the importance is that, you know, you laugh, then you think about why you laugh, then you got to think about why you think about why you laughed. Mm. So on those levels, you know, to get people to some point of sort of arcing head, because then again, what you're doing is you're arcing head to heart, mm-hmm. you know, because you're feeling some kind of way about what you see here and maybe something catches in your throat and maybe it's funny, but then you're like, wait, but that's not funny because then maybe in your mind with the whole thing about wearing a hoodie. Wait, yeah, that, that was one, I was going to have you hit a couple. That was one of the yeah. ones I remember. It's like, if you got a hood on. Or don't, yeah, if you got a hoodie on. But then that was connected. Don't, pu- don't pull the hood up. <laughs> that, that, was, that was connected to Trayvon Martin. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so for people, because some people aren't going to, 
they're not watching that. And they might say, well, why would you say that? Well, and then, you know, I had somebody tell me, and I'd seen it, and I don't know whether it happens here or not, but, you know, you go to certain stores and it will tell you, you cannot come in the store with a hoodie on. Oh, I've yeah, not seen sure. that. You know, um, no hoodies allowed. Hmm. I've, I've, I've seen that. So in thinking about that or saying um, or, or thinking about being confused as the other black birder, you know, to be called <laughs> to be called somebody else because um, maybe it's only two of you there and people haven't taken enough time to notice that you actually are, in fact, different. That one person's 5'10", the other person's 6'2", that one person weighs mm, a lot and the other person <laughs> weighs not so much. Mm-hmm. You know, notice, because you're noticing all of these variations in birds. You can do it. You can do it, I promise. So thinking about those things wasn't hard, man. I was feeling all of them. Um, I had lived most of them. And so when I was asked about doing it, you know, it just flew out of my hands. And then this very courageous... Um, conservation organization out of Seattle, Bird Note, those people went to the next level. And, 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 and Bird Note is great in promoting the science of, um, of, of in promoting ornithology, the science of, of bird conservation and all of that. But they're also great at arcing. And so they were brave enough and they said, you know, would you consider doing a film? And, um, and the day that the weekend that we were supposed to do the film, I was traveling up in the mid-Atlantic and the producer actually had the date wrong originally. So we started a day late, but most of that stuff, those nine rules, one take. Oh yeah. Because, well, I, I mean. That, What's the that, call for people who want to find it on YouTube? Um, nine rules for the Blackbird Watcher. Okay, yeah. Here, let's just, let's listen to one. You know, they're essential tools for birding. They're your binoculars, your spotting scope, your field guide. And if you're black, you're gonna need probably two or three forms of ID. When I meet another black birder, it's like encountering an ivory-billed woodpecker, an endangered species, extinction looms. Did you do the list? Was it before or after the very high-profile case where the gentleman in Central Park, mm-hmm. I believe it was. Yeah, Christian. Christian Cooper. Got, he had like, a woman was in, had a dog in a leash area off the leash, yeah. and he asked her to put a leash on the dog or go to this part of the park where you could have your dog unleashed, and right. she called the cops. I, I was going to yeah. say, it was a dog leash issue. It wasn't a birding issue, right? Yeah. yeah. And he had he had his binoculars. He was birding. Yeah, yeah. She, and then he recorded the whole thing. and then Oh, yeah. And then her, I think her life kind of came apart after that. Yeah, or she got it back. Oh. And her dog. <laughs> so she's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, th- th- that was um, that was some of that nine rules sort of in effect, you know, and how you approach people. You, you know, the skin you're in in this country matters. And so where you are matters. And, you know, I'm a southerner and um, and, and, and we've got a, a, a bitter history in the south, of course. But then, you know, um, anything can jump off anywhere. And so when that happened to Christian, I was actually um, up at a little up at my little mountain place. And and I remember coming back in the cell reception and my phone was blowing up, you know, with people wanting to know about, you know, birding wild black and what's this about and this and that. And 
And so nine rules was sort of revived at that point because people were like, so what is it like to, to live this way? Well, but so, so that's all, so you'd already done it. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 See, and that's, yeah, that, that's that, really funny. That, 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 that was, I'm there. sorry, laughable, no, not funny. Right. But, <laughs> but it was honestly, yeah. and that, that was my whole thing. I'm like, wait, this has been out since 2013, but all of a sudden here it is again. So it was one of those things, you know, I tell, you know, you tell folks, well, and folks would say, well, it can't be that serious. Come on, you're just birding. You're not going to, well, some people are just jogging and get shot, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in thinking about what, um, how those things intersect, that again, Steve, is where I come to this point of not leaving the science, but really wanting to, to try to make a difference in how we go about doing what we do, um, whether it's as a hobby of, of birding or whether it's conservation, so that people become aware that it, it, it unfortunately, it does make a difference who you are racially in this country. So, I, you know, my first research project, I had to give up because, well, I didn't have to give it up, but then I did have to give it up. And I say it that way because people would have said, well, if you're a real scientist, you'll go into, you know, this valley of the shadow of death where these white supremacists are deciding they're going to make it a homeland. So I had to make the decision, well, am I going to press that or am I going to leave that research project behind because I care about my life more than I do gathering data in this place? So I made the decision to move my research project, really to take up a whole new research project in a place where I felt safer. Mm-hmm. And that kind of stuff happens. So in, in bringing that to light, you know, it's sure there's science, there's sociology that can be done, there are behavioral science that can be done, assessments that can be done on that. But to have people understand that I got to think about that, right, um, I think is part of, I see it as part of my mission to move the science that I do in a direction that has people feel about it and think about it. Do you uh, do you find yourself telling people that to something to the equivalent of like you should? You're not interested in nature. You're not interested in birds. You're not mm. a birder, but you should be one. Oh no! Oh God, no! <laughs> I no. I you know it. Maybe it's boulders. Maybe it's butterflies. Maybe it's blue crabs. I don't know. But if it's something that gets you connected to nature, well, look, first of all, I try to get people to understand where their food comes from, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's, that's the first science you ought to be concerned about. And um, I, I don't try to force ever force people into loving what I love. Uh, but to, to have some appreciation for a connection to nature, I think is important. Connection, and when I say nature, it's connection to air, connection to soil, connection to water. So if they understand that there's this connection, that their water just doesn't magically come out of some place that makes it clean, then then we're going to have an issue. Mm-hmm. So to get them to that point, you know, I, I listened to a report um, a few weeks back, and it was some incredibly disturbing percentage of children who think that bacon comes from plants. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and to, and to me, that's, that's disturbing or to talk to, you know, to talk to really intelligent students, really intelligent high school students. I was, had, they were in a camp I was doing 
science camp, and I was teaching an ecology course. And when I teach my ecology courses, you come into Marvin Gaye's ecology. You know, of course, they didn't know Marvin Gaye. He wasn't we were too young. <laughs> but, um, you know, one of, the, one of the students was in there and was eating a candy bar. And they, they're not supposed to eat in there, but I really didn't care. But it was an opportunity. He was eating the candy bar, and he was kind of smacking it. So, so I'm like, okay, you want to eat this candy bar? I want you to tell me what, where the ingredients came from in that candy bar, the main ingredients came from in the candy bar, and I will buy everybody in this class their choice of candy tomorrow. And he sort of rocks backs, really arrogant. And he's eating, I don't know, like a payday or something. I said, so where'd the peanuts come from? Oh, and he just, man, he leans way back and he's like, okay, everybody get your list together because y'all, all y'all getting candy bars tomorrow. And he tells me, of course, that these peanuts came off a peanut tree. I'm like, really? A peanut tree. <laughs> so he had no idea that these were legumes. I didn't expect him to know that there was a, a leguminous plant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, But that these things came out of the ground. Or that people think that potatoes come off of potato trees. That's a thing. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think I used to think that growing up in New York City, maybe. I probably yeah, was but, totally... But, but, then you, but you're disconnected from it, yeah. right? And, you know, marketing isn't going to show you a Lay's coming out of the ground. <laughs> they, just, they, just, they, they just care that you eat the chip. So, um, but, but then that people don't know again where there is. One of the things that I try to do when people ask why I hunt, um, you know, it, that's a whole foods market. And, and so to, to go to that level and think about, you know, you don't have to hunt. But you need to know that your meat blinked before it became a burger. And if you have and if you have that idea, if you know that, then it does give you a different appreciation for life. Um, one of the things that is always funny to me is how you know you get challenged. Um, sometimes I one of the times that I um, got booed at a presentation was that there was I had a picture of me with this with this little buck. That I'd killed, and I, I'd wrote, written a poem about it. It's called "Elegy for a Gut Pile," and um, <laughs> um, well, and, and it's and it's about being elbow deep in an animal, uh, right? Yeah. And and can we of, license that for a T-shirt? <laughs> hey, we'll, we can talk. Right? We can talk. We can talk. Um, but that that whole idea, and this was happening after Michael Ferguson's death, and so. Here I am in this in this gut pile, um, field dressing this deer, and I, I just I was overcome with still. First of all, it, this was a weird thing. I, when I after I'd shot this this animal, I went down to it um, on this side slope, and I had never seen this muscle quiver mm-hmm. just just under, but it's like every fiber of this deer's body was going away and I, I I you know and you see movement but I had never seen it this way and I sat uh, with this animal and then in field dressing it um, was thinking about the appreciation for life and so I, I tell folks when the day comes that there's not some minute of indecision that I have about pulling the trigger or loosen the bow then loosen the arrow then it's time for me to stop you know it might be and it it might not seem like i'm taking but i'm taking a beat 
And I don't think that we are we are taught to to take those beats. It's sort of been marketed out of us because people don't want to understand that their meat blinks except for fish, and then they have no problem, you know, doing whatever they want to do to fish because they don't blink. So it's a disconnect from life that I think, um, you know, I try to get people to, whether it's through birds or butterflies or, or whatever else that it is. But nah, no, you must for anything. But <laughs> it's kind of like, well, you better if you don't pay attention to what's going on, then this is this is this is what happens. Years ago, we had a guest on a essayist, a novelist named Tom McGuane, mm-hmm. and he 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 hunt, he's been a lifelong hunter, and he said something about hunting where he said, um, "You're trying to kill something that's trying to stay alive." He said, right, "Are you going to ignore that?" Mm. <laughs> you know, you know, like, Thank you. And, and you know, and, and, and in all honesty, oftentimes I do. Mm. You, fall, you know, you know yeah. what I mean. Like yeah. you lose sight of, then you, then something really reminds you of it. We had like a just the other night, like a very visceral reminder of that. It's like that thing doesn't want this to happen. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the to to but to recognize that, um, you know. I don't think maybe it's necessarily apparent, you know, if 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 you're just playing life with your thumbs. Mm-hmm. Um, but but being out there in it, or at the very least, and for those of us who grew up on a farm, you know, and you and you make the mistake of naming that calf, you know, so what happens when it's sizzling on the plate? You know, you're my, not calling my, that. My friend Doug Dern, he grew up near another dairy family, and he said they solved that because they were all named Dinner. Yeah. <laughs> there, there you go. I mean, you you got you got to think about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You got to, and I don't think we do that enough. You know, um, you know, drinking crab flavored <laughs> whiskey uh, makes me think of the briny deep, and not in a great way. You know, it's probably what it tastes like to drown. I would suppose. <laughs> but, um, I, but it, Thank you to Tamworth <laughs> Distilling for the care package. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, the caster was real Drew, good. Drew's yeah. going to wind up with an endorsement deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love the caster really, um, but I, I just, I just think for for me, I mean, birds are sort of at that place of uh, being able to show. Um, the epitome of life. So, I mean, flight and the song and just their activity, and they're everywhere, even if it's pigeons. Even if it's pigeons, um, if you take a while to watch pigeons, I mean, you can't help but be impressed. Yeah, they are common, but here are birds that have been symbols of peace. They've been symbols of, 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 of life itself, but people just ignore them. So, you got um, a crazy way of flying. Like their pattern of flights, just bizarre. Exactly. But that you recognize that, right? That you just don't walk by and not see that happening um, is, is to me, when when people do that, then we're sort of at a dangerous place. You know, we're at a dangerous place in a disregard for for life. So, you know, it's, birds are, I mean, birds are it for me in that way. But, um, you know, being able to exercise that option of watching them and adoring them and, you know, making what's in the who's, uh, that's, that's kind of a dream come true for me. So here I am. Well, thanks for being here. 
I, I appreciated it. Yeah, it took a while for us to get together, but I, I admire the work. I really do um, have, for, have for a while because I think it's important to um, – you're, you're arcing head and heart. There's a lot of information that you're putting out and research and words and moving words in the direction for people to laugh at it, to think about it, and then hopefully do something about it. So I appreciate it. Oh, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, hit, hit him with hit him with your hit him with your lineup of uh, books and best way to find you. Uh, the Home Place: Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. Um, if you will find your indie bookseller somewhere, um, Sparrow Envy: Field Guide to Birds and Lesser Beasts. That's a Hub City uh, book that you can buy from Hub City Books. Uh, forthcoming books from Farrar or book from Farrar Strauss and Guru is. Range Maps, Birds, Blackness, and Loving Nature Between the Two. From Enchanted Lion will come Home Place Hues, where you can find colors like Cow Shit Brown in my box of Crayola 64. (laughs) (laughs) And The Bird I Became, um, a black boy's story of becoming a a bird. Man, busy dude. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you got a course load at Clemson or no? Yeah, yeah, I got a course load. Not teaching um, so much this semester, but uh, got got lots of deadlines, including one uh, on uh, on Monday. So lots of essays in the works, lots of poems. That's my last question for you, okay? We yeah. always, always come down to, you know how I know it's real? I found it on the Cornell ornithological <laughs> lab. Is that the best... Uh, birding resource out there. They, I th- yeah, I th- I think so. Okay. Yeah, you know good, it's good to hear. I mean that that was my dream as a kid. I wanted to go to Cornell. I wanted to be a Cornell ornithologist specifically. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So um, I get to work a good bit with Cornell. I've published stuff in um, in Living Bird, but yeah, you can't do better than that. I feel that you dig them because they they do a good job of putting stuff out to 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 Joe Blows like us, right? There you go. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's the science moving. Yeah. And, and nobody's going to discount that science. Mm. But more people know the science because Cornell values that aspect of it, of getting yeah. out there. They yeah. get, do a great job of getting people in a position to find it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This might not be the right way to put it, but I feel like it's like um, they, 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 have, they seem to have like a very good balance, too. It's like it's not like it's, it's not like politicized, you know what I mean? Mm. It's just it's very like like good information for people that want to start understanding birds it's digestible from whatever route they're taking into it it's just like helpful stuff man yeah that uh yeah. that merlin app that's incredible that. yeah that yeah. and it's and it's going to get better you know and i and i turn people on too every you know when i teach ornithology in the spring i also turn them on to um to the du page and Duckcast and that oh is that right yeah, yeah. I, I turn the students on to because i i want to cross foster um learning. So, you know, you go into to Cornell for, for some stuff, you're going to the DU site for other yeah. stuff to DU understand. site's really good too. Yeah. It's really informative. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's a lot of resources out there, but those are two of the best. Awesome. Well, you got a standing invitation to come back. I'll be back. As a matter of fact, you got enough stuff going on. You'll, you'll get re, uh, you know, yeah. you'll, get a, you'll get a new set of ideas working up pretty quick. We'll, we'll try. Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, this Montana has been in my, uh, in my dream basket for all my life. 
I, I wanted to be three things growing up. I wanted to be an ornithologist. A bird. I, I wanted to be a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, right? And then I wanted to be a Montana cowboy. I didn't want to be, <laughs> I, did, I, did, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Not wanna, a Wyoming cowboy. Nope, nope, nope. I wanted to Never. be a, Mo because Montana for me defined the West. Hmm. And I would look in, in the old encyclopedias that we had and it just, um, it just always pulled me in. And so now that I have the opportunity to work down at, um, with, with Elk River Books, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a dream come true. So I appreciate you giving me the space. Oh, thanks, man. You should come out and turkey hunt and watch some other birds while you're doing Okay. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you ever want to go shoot some ducks. You know, I've, I'll be staying at a cabin. I, I bid on this cabin uh, last night at uh, at the Elk River Book Festival, or I'm sorry, Elk River Writers uh, Workshop, and um, and won this cabin. And um, good for you. So, and uh, yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make it up uh, in during elk season. You guys can tell me about cow tags and stuff. So I need to understand that. <laughs> um, I don't know how accessible. It is here, but um, well, unfortunately, there's no last minute options. Yeah, I no. I, there, there may be. There might be. There may be. Yeah, yeah. But you know, but I also, you know, this is something. I mean, there's no time limit on it, so you know, I can put in and and get that work you done. Definitely but, get some deer tags. Sounds like you're well, coming back to Montana. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, deer wise, I've always wanted to hunt the Milk River. Uh, you know, so that again, it's. So white-tailed or white tails, um, <laughs> you know. For for me, that's that's still that's still the the beast of of choice for me. But I have others in line that I'm gonna get at. Well, stay in touch, man. We'll do. Right. We'll do. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for what you do. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. so much. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.